0: Good evening, everyone. The war is on. War on the reckless driver. War on the public enemy on the highway. The nation fights back, determined to drive and to live. Planes overhead on many main highways in a great many states. National guardsmen out in the Midwest. Every state trooper in Pennsylvania on the job. Illinois, Arizona, Michigan. The National Guard
1: out. This massacre
0: on the highway must end.
1: On December 31st 1955, as Gabriel Heater counted down to midnight, many radio executives were thumbing through their 1956 radio network's annual. Here's
0: a late one from Detroit. We missed our 8 million goal Golan cars for the year by only 60,000.
1: In an editorial within, Arthur Hull, president of CBS Radio, spoke of the medium's new threshold of achievement.
0: In 1955,
1: there were 15 million radio sets produced, the most since 1948. There were now nearly 150 million radio sets in the U.S.
0: This made Hull portend
1: that, in 1956, radio would be an equally powerful tool for both large national advertisers and small local ones.
0: The Geneva spirit.
1: Although CBS averaged average average over 100 America news, news programs each week, dramatic radio continued to draw rare. the network's largest audiences. My, oh my, America was moving soft, and, soft, and radio was oh moving no with no them. Sir. out- of home listening now equaled TV time viewing. during primetime, primetime hours auto listeners time. added Don't an additional 40% percent to at-home audiences
0: Christmas and New year to send a shiver around the world and make everybody wonder whether they've got that intercontinental
1: rocket. Rudimentary mobile audience measurement was underway. In one 15-minute period on a Sunday afternoon, Nielsen found more than 3 million people to be tuned in on car radios. Because of this, as the calendar turned to 1956, CBS expanded its dramatic slate of programs. One of the network's most popular shows, Gunsmoke, aired on Sunday evenings, with a repeat broadcast the following Saturday afternoon. It revolutionized the adult radio Western. CBS decided to give its director, Norman McDonald, a second show. The show would take place in what is now the state of Wyoming, and star Raymond Burr and Vic Perrin. It would be called Fort Laramie. Land under skies above. Don't fence me in. Welcome to Breaking Let's Walls, episode right 114. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, as America moves to the suburbs in the mid-1950s, we move with them and examine a radio western called Fort Laramie. Although it only aired for ten months, it's one of the most critically acclaimed western shows the genre ever produced. Tonight, we'll find out why. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is Bing Crosby and the Andrews Sisters' rendition of Don't Fence Me In. It's a fitting song for a nation that, by 1956, was very much on the move.
2: Ride to the ridge Where the west commences
0: And gaze at the moon
1: Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. And Burning Gotham, the new historical fiction audio drama set in 1835 in New York City is still on its way. Go to burninggotham.com for teasers and more information.
3: Skies, don't fence me in.
1: You can also Let support these shows for as little as one dollar per month at patreon.com slash the me.
3: In.
2: Let me be by myself in the
3: evening breeze and listen to the murmur of the cottonwood tree. Send me off forever but I ask you please do <whistles>
4: The six officers are right here have worked together on hundreds, perhaps thousands of occasions. And there was always something, to me anyway, that was rather special about CBS and CBS productions. And I think a large part of that, certainly in my estimation, was due to a man named Norman Macdonald. You're here. He started as a page... He started as a page boy, worked up to an assistant director, a clock watcher, later became a a director on his own, and I remember working on his first show, which was a rebroadcast of an old local show called Romance of the Ranchos, and it was supposed to go on the Western Network. Actually, I think it dead ended in the basement. Nobody ever heard it. (laughs) But at any rate, Norm started that way. He was a man of infinite good taste, infinite good humor, was able to somehow or other bring a cast together. Harry, he loved actors, which you, right. you can't I say think that's it. correct. Yeah. He did. He loved actors. And working together, as most of us did almost every week on Gunsmoke in particular, he developed a sort of a rapport which you find only in repertory companies. I'd like to vote him thanks for what
5: mm-hmm. he did for me. Oh, my. Indeed.
1: I second that. By 1955, Norman McDonald was a radio veteran with thousands of broadcast hours under his belt. He'd been producing and directing Gunsmoke since 1952.
6: When Gunsmoke went on the air in uh, April of '52. It was really the only one of its kind. In the years that followed, I think there were a good many imitators, and some very successful and some just poor imitations.
1: But the show was moved into TV that fall with a completely different crew, and McDonald was displeased about having Gunsmoke's TV version taken from him.
6: It was determined to go with Jim Arness, who was a protege of Duke Waynes and a good actor, although a newcomer, and Dennis Weaver, Amanda Blake and Melbourne Stone, all good, solid actors. Bill Warren really should get a tremendous amount of credit for transferring the shows from radio to television. I think he was able to keep the feel and the intent of what the radio show had been. It was Bill who wardrobed the principals and for many years they were the only well-wardrobed westerns on the air. Bo was responsible for the kind of photography and the kind of sets.
1: McDonald was given the role of producer in order to help continuity to the small screen.
6: I was able to be of considerable help, I hope, by being able to describe how we had pictured the sets, how we had pictured the long branch on the street and where the jail cells were and all the other things that we'd worked with in radio. The television show was uh, bought quickly from the pilot film that Bill Warren made and uh, went on the air in September of 55 and was almost immediately well received. Part of this of course was that there had been three years of Pre-publicity, because the Gunsmoke radio show had been enormously well received in those three years prior, so it was a it was a happy wedding.
1: Gunsmoke's radio show was one of the first to offer a more accurate portrayal of events and relationships from the Western era, as writer John Meston remembered.
7: As well, I recall, I've been told we were not the first show that treated Indians as human beings, not just redskins and the only good Indians and dead ones and so on a number of shows about that, and intermarriage. I think we, we, the Indians before that, as I remember, that wasn't around much before that. They were treated in the, old, the old way, you know. Just, I think Gunsmoke was part of her understanding the first show that really changed us somewhat. Oh, no, like, I, the white man, the way he treated the Indians, is a national disgrace. It still is.
1: and with CBS Radio seeing a rise in profits, it was decided that McDonald should direct a second Western offering. It needed to be as different from Gunsmoke as possible, while still retaining what made the show a success.
7: Well, I don't like phony stuff, and, and uh, I knew something about the West, sure. The way people are, the way they talk, the way they behave. I never liked heroes much, so we kind of reversed everything. I tried to do it while we did with narration, which was sort of an innovation, I think, so. Well, we tried to make him honest, just an honest, not a crook like like Wyatt Earp, the guy with a sense of tragedy. The guy didn't particularly enjoy the job. No, we worked very closely. The uh, radio, I was there all the time. But I'm always hired. we very best actors, no question of that. You know, they couldn't lead a line, they'd, they'd let me know with great pleasure. And they're generally right.
1: The duo decided to focus on the U.S. cavalry during the 1870s. Stationed on the eastern border of present-day Wyoming had a place called Fort Laramie. It was near the North Platte and Laramie Rivers, located roughly 100 miles from its current namesake city. The area was home to the Sioux, Cheyenne, and Arapaho. Beginning in 1834, the fort was an important fur trade outpost, soon becoming a major stopover for the Overland Stage and the Pony Express. In 1849... The U.S. government bought the site. There were
6: other shows that were in this general area of Western or period. One of them that I was connected with was Fort Laramie, starring Raymond Burr. It was a cavalry show, again, 1870 or 1875, in Wyoming, and a, a successful one.
1: On July 25th, 1955, an audition was recorded with John Daner in the title role of Captain Lee Quince.
8: At a walk! Oh, and a Fort
3: Laramie, Fort Laramie.
9: Laramie, starring John Daner as Captain Lee Quince, tales of the dark and tragic ground of the wild frontier, the saga of fighting men who rode the rim of empire, and the dramatic story of Lee Quince, Captain of Cavalry.
10: Of course. Yes, sir. Pass the word to dismount and unsaddle. All right, Captain. I'm going up on that little knoll. Maybe I can see Mr. Seibert's party from there. I'll be right back. Yes, sir. Dismount and unsaddle, pin graze water. Dismount and
8: unsaddle, pin water. All right. You want
11: that mount for you grazing this time? Sure, Sergeant. I was just going What to... Well, you do it, then.
8: This my on
11: We could make camp here, there There's water. Yeah. We could go hunting and fishing, too. Maybe bake some bread. <laughs> Given you don't like the Army, why didn't you stay in Louisville? I was starving there, too. But at least in Louisville, I never had no Indians after my scout. You afraid of Indians, Bullright? Sure. But I'm going to get me one. i got to get me an Indian. Why? Then I won't be scared no more. Well, at least you're not in the stockade.
1: <laughs> and that's just because Captain Quince needs me.
11: The troops supposed to have 83 privates.
1: But Daner. Turned the role down. Although he was an important member of the Gunsmoke supporting cast, he feared being typed in Western roles. What's the matter,
5: I did every accent known to man South Slobovian, East Yemeni, and I did it with absolute perfection because nobody knew what they sounded like. <laughs> Not a soul director or producer said, well, can you do this and that? And he said, of course I can. And you did it? And he said, beautiful. Because he didn't know what it was supposed <laughs> to sound like.
1: Daner would continue to be featured on Gunsmoke. But for Fort Laramie, McDonald would have to look for a
3: different star.
12: We claim you as a New Westminster boy.
13: You still have strong family connections there,
14: don't you? Very much so. I was born on Queens Avenue and my grandparents had one of the oldest houses in, in uh, New Westminster on Royal, which is still standing, in which my parents live now. I uh, love New Westminster and know more about it, I suppose, than any part, other part of Canada.
1: William Raymond Stacy Burr was born on May 21, 1917 in British Columbia, Canada. His father was a hardware salesman, his mother a pianist and music teacher. When Burr was six, his parents divorced. He moved with his mother and younger siblings to Vallejo, California. He spent his youth traveling up and down the Pacific Northwest to spend time with his family. At the age of 11 get his first paid acting role.
14: You start in school and in church, doing the church productions and the grammar school productions and the secondary school productions. I was always very much involved.
15: What and was your went on
14: from there? First professional part. Oh, I think I played KF as the high priest in a church production, which was professional mm-hmm. because we were paid for all our own expenses. I had to buy my own beer. And I was 11 years old at the time.
1: Unable to afford tuition to the Pasadena Playhouse, he joined the Toronto Theatre Group in 1934, supposedly touring the world over. We say supposedly because Burr was known in later years to never let the truth get in the way of a good story. That alone made him perfectly suited for radio.
14: I've done a great many things. I was a forest ranger in the United States or worked with the Forest Service for two years digging ditches and building roads and dams and fighting fire. I worked on a sheep and cattle ranch in New Mexico, herding sheep and cattle and building fences. Uh, I was a teacher at one time. have done just about everything you can do.
1: He briefly attended Long Beach Junior College and taught for a semester in San Jose, working nights on radio. Burr finally began his association with the Pasadena Playhouse in 1937 before moving to New York in 1940 to make his Broadway debut in the quickly folding Crazy with the Heat. He spent the war years establishing himself on both coasts, becoming one of San Francisco and then Hollywood's top radio actors, thanks to a friendship with Jack Webb, as Lillian Biaf remembered. Okay, I remember Jack
16: Webb before Dragnet. As a matter of fact, Herb Ellis was living in San Francisco at the time. He and Jack were very good friends, and when Jack was coming to Los Angeles, Herb called me and said, meet him at, I don't forget which studio, and audition for him. He's going to be doing a program called Pat Novak for Hire. Mm -hmm. And you remember the show? Yeah. So that's where I met Jack, I met Raymond Burr there, and a woman that I wonder if she's still around, her first name was Yvonne, a very very low sexy
3: voice
16: exactly is she, she sure still is around still uh, Yvonne Pady. yeah
3: I remember.
16: You remember the voice yeah. I remember anyhow that that's changed. my recollection of Jack Webb at first
1: he'd also spend the next decade appearing in over 50 films like pitfall with Dick Powell which he reprised his role for in the Lux radio theater on November 8 1948
11: greeting friend. I told your secretary I'd wait for you here. You want to see me about something
14: special, McDonald, or do you just like to sit in my chair? Why the chill? Yeah, no chill. I've got a lot of work to do. I, uh, just been looking at this report on your desk. A list of the things you recovered from Mona Stevens. Yeah? You must be slipping, Johnny. What about the boat? Boat? What boat? The boat Smiley bought for
17: her. Oh, I, uh, I must have missed it. I didn't know she had a boat.
14: She's quite a girl, isn't she?
17: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I got another job for you,
14: mag Fine, I'm always glad to go to work.
1: When Jack Webb launched Dragnet in 1949, Burr was cast as the police chief, Ed Backstrand.
2: Somebody declare a holiday? No joke, Sergeant. Big trouble. All right, you convinced me. What is it? Here we are, 16th floor.
14: Over here, friendy. Hi, Joe.
2: Hello, Ben. You made good time? Came as soon as I got the call, Ed
14: sorry to have to bring you back in you worked last night didn't you
2: yeah midnight to eight this morning
14: sorry come on okay what is it skipper why all the hush us. wait till we get inside in here okay number one let's keep our voices down all right i'll make it as brief as i can every minute counts what time you got friday Eight thirty-three. all right here it is 55 minutes ago a man walked into this building with a homemade bomb under his arm if we don't release his brother from the county jail by 9 o'clock this morning, he says he'll pull the trigger on the bomb and blow up the whole building. He's kidding, Skipper. Who is the guy? Name's Vernon Carney. Here's his package. He and his brother have been in and out of jail since 1937. Small-time thieves. Yeah. Where's the FBI kickback? We had him once before, both of them. Brother's name is Elwood. Serving a year for car stripping. And this
11: two-bit thief is sitting here in a city hall with a bomb on his lap?
14: That's right. In the next room. What kind of a bomb is it, Ed? You think he's bluffing? Could be bluffing, but the crime lab says no.
11: lee Jones from the lab get a look at.
14: Been in there twice. One end of the box is glass. Says you can't see much without a closer look, but you can't get near the guy. What do you want us to do? It's a volunteer job. You can take it or leave it. I won't order you to do it. How you want to handle it? You sure you want a piece of this one, Romero? No, he doesn't, Ed. He's got a
2: family. Get me another single man. We'll give it a try.
11: Wait a minute, Joe. What makes this job so different? Anytime we kick
18: a door in, we never know what's on the other side. That's what
14: makes it different. This time we do.
18: No, you're not going to cut me out. Not the only time I know what I'm getting into.
14: All right. Chandler's tried. Hannon, Davis, Watson—they've all tried. This guy Carney knows what he's doing. He's no pushover. But somebody's got to get that bomb away from him. Friday. Romero—it's your baby now. I looked at my watch. It was eight thirty-six. We left Backstrand
1: and started down the hall. He continued to make radio appearances throughout the 1950s on shows like The Screen Directors Playhouse, Family Theater, Dr. Kildare, The Lineup, Nightbeat, Richard Diamond, and The Whistler. He also transitioned with many of these shows onto television. Meanwhile in 1954, Burr was cast in one of his most famous villain roles as Lars Thorwald in Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window.
14: What do you want from me? Your friend, the girl, could have turned me in. Why didn't she? What is it you want, a lot of money? I don't have any money. Say something. Say something, tell me what you want. Can you get me that ring
19: back? No. Tell her to bring it back. I can't. The police have it by now.
20: Well, you see, we have a fortunate thing
14: called television today. I made 90 motion pictures between 1946 and 1956, and they're all playing on television, so my career in those things still continues. I've had the opportunity of playing many roles and a great variety of roles through the years, But I've fortunately been able to drop the role at the end of the time it was being played and return to whatever life I enjoy.
8: Laser! Dial!
1: But radio remained in Burr's system. He'd spent a decade appearing all over the radio dial, although never starring in any one particular series. That is, until January of 1956, when Norman MacDonald gave him a call. January of 1956, Broadcasting Magazine wrote that CBS was once again hyping radio drama thanks to renewed public interest. The network was bringing the CBS radio workshop back to the air, and debuting two new dramatic offerings on Sunday afternoons. At 5 p.m., Indictment would air, followed at 5.30 by Fort Laramie. The show debuted on January 22nd.
14: Sergeant Gorse, how are you? It's sure good to see you, Captain. You look kind of funny, though. (laughs) What do you mean? Them clothes, Mufti. I ain't used to you out of uniform. I'll be back in uniform at midnight tonight, Sergeant. We'll stay in town till then. And you can buy me a drink. Me? buy? I thought you was going to get rich in St. Louis. (laughs) Did I say that? Well, you talked about nothing else before your leave come through. Just proves you shouldn't believe everything you hear, Sergeant. Yes, sir. I'll try to remember that. See that you do. Then to really fool you, I may go back to St. Louis. Quit the army? Man can make money there, Sergeant. I don't mean gambling. I mean honestly. In an honest business. Buying things. Selling them. Well, sir, the army's sure no place for a man who wants to get rich. I'll say that. The army's no place for a man who wants to do any living at all. You're either turning black with the boredom of garrison, or you're riding hell bent into nowhere. That's sure enough true, Captain. Well, come on, let's get our drink. How's B Company, Sergeant? Company's fine, sir.
22: Major Daggett's going to be mighty glad to see you back at Fort Laramie. <laughs> he isn't going to see me till midnight. He'll be waiting up. Send me into town to tell you. Huh? Yeah. Something wrong? Yes, sir. Well, what? Arapahoes. They've been raiding for horses. Massacred a whole family over in the basin about ten days ago. You mean... You mean they jumped the reservation? Not the whole tribe. Just a few of them, I guess. Mr. Seibert's took B Company out last week, but he didn't have any luck. Why
14: not? I don't know, Captain. I wasn't with him. What? I've been on sick list till two days ago. Sick list? You? Yes, sir. Uh, Pack
22: mule kicked me in the belly.
14: Oh. Well, a little whiskey will cure that, Sergeant. (laughs) Well, here we are. Mr. Seibert's is feeling mighty bad about it. Your belly? <laughs> like I said, it's good to have you back, Captain. <laughs> uh, bottle of rye and two glasses.
11: Coming up, uh, the
14: army.
13: <laughs> hey, look at what came in. What's
14: his trouble?
8: <laughs>
14: <laughs> Eight soldiers, I guess. <laughs> like a lot of people. <laughs> Since Richmond? Yeah. Too much war, maybe. I guess everybody likes like to forget it now. we all like to forget it. There's a war still going on. You're right, sir. Who do they think stands between them and all the hostiles out there waiting to hack them to pieces? Who does all their dirty work for them? It isn't like people to be grateful for any favors, Sergeant. No, sir, I guess not. I think of the troops aching for home while they sweat and freeze and spill their blood all over the frontier for 50 cents a day. It makes me mad. Tell me about St. Louis, Captain.
12: Here's your liquor, gentlemen. Hey, you! Hold it!
14: You know them, Sergeant? No, sir. What's your trouble, mister? My name ain't
13: mister. It's Rudio. I ain't talking to you. I'm talking to the soldier.
14: I'm with the soldier.
13: You
18: stay out of this, you know what's good for you.
14: You tell him, Moylan. What do you want from me? I never saw you before.
18: You won't want to see us again
14: after we're through with you. What's this all about?
13: We don't like soldiers drinking where we drink, mister. We like to teach them a lesson now and then. Don't we, Moilin? Yeah, we do it, too. Now, you just shut the... up, mister. What's the matter with you coming in here with a soldier? Gonna drink with him, too.
11: Rudio, oh. I just
18: guess that he ain't no better than no soldier himself. Yes, scum, floating with scum. (laughs) That's what I call it. (laughs) Well...
14: Okay, Sergeant Gorse. Yes, sir. You can have Moreland there. Thank you, sir. Move out. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll buy you that drink now, Captain Quince. You can buy the first one, Sergeant. Yes, sir.
1: (laughs) Vic Perrin, who played Sergeant Gorse, was by then one of Hollywood Radio's most accomplished actors. I was on the post at midnight, Major. I wanted to get back
14: in the uniform before reporting.
1: He'd begun as an announcer before transitioning after World War II. By the early 1950s, he was a familiar voice on both Dragnet and Gunsmoke.
14: We've known each other a long time, Major. You did a lot
1: of Gunsmokes down
23: through the About years, right? About three out of four, I would say. And I, my week was
22: incomplete if I didn't have a call for the show. If I had a choice between taking a, a weekend cruise from here to Ensenada uh-huh. or working a gunsmoke smoke show, I would take the gunsmoke show. It was, was that more fun? fun. It was absolutely heaven. We laughed until we cried all through the rehearsal. Really? It, it was like uh, the script on the first reading... There was no resemblance to what the eventual show would be. It was like doing Second City. Uh, It was improv from the very first line on until we struggled through. How they ever got even a semblance of a timing on
23: the show, I don't know. Reminds me of a line attributed to Bob Hope when they were doing road pictures. And some of the writers came on the set. And, of course, Hope and Crosby were guilty or... I don't know if that's the word to use of a lot of ad-libbing. And Hope noticing the writers watching them work said, listen, you hear any of your lines, yell bingo. You
14: know? <laughs> I don't know if he really did
24: that or not.
1: But it
14: was fun, it really was. Sure, he's green, but a few Arapaho can hide easy from a whole troop of cavalry beating its way through this country.
1: In its January 30th, 1956 issue, Broadcasting Magazine gave the series a glowing review. Then I'll
14: come back for the company. No, no, it's too slow. There isn't time. Better let me try it, sir. I said no, Captain. You haven't got very far your way, Major.
18: You have your orders.
1: They stated, no dog and boy story. Fort Laramie is rather a Wild West version of What Price Glory, whose main characters, no, captain in this case Captain Lee Quince and Sergeant Gorse, spend half their time grousing about how tough life in the Army is, and the other half proving that or it's the you... only life for Sergeant
14: them. Sergeant Gorse were in a brawl earlier this evening in town. Conduct and becoming an officer. You should learn to control your temper, Captain. I wonder what family the Arapahos are putting the knife to tonight, Major Daggett. (sighs) I should never start this sort of thing with you. Take your patrol. Yes, sir. Any further orders? May have Sergeant Gorse and Lieutenant Seibert's. But no other officers or non-commissioned officers. Right. Bash your men through the main gates of the post half hour before reveille. Any questions? No, sir. Then move out.
1: Writer John Meston and producer-director Norman McDonald, whose work on Gunsmoke has won them critical acclaim, have in Fort Laramie a good locale for an equally successful series. Raymond Burr as the captain and Vic Perrin as a sergeant handle their parts with professional aplomb.
14: be new, Mr. Seibertz. Yes, sir, it is.
1: A special fanfare is due Bill James and Ray Kemper, the program's sound effects men. For the sounds that give the heroic adventures an auditory cloak of authenticity. It had always been
6: a rule of thumb in radio that there should not be any dead air, that people must keep talking. the man likes it out here, away from people? Well, we changed that, not because we deliberately set out to change it, but just because the people we were working with didn't talk all the time. So we had to fill it with sound patterns. We had three sound men for the most part, Bill James, Tom Hanley, Ray Kemper, who contributed more to the show than anybody could ever imagine. For example, the boys on their own time realized that we were having trouble with live gunshots. They on a Saturday went out with some equipment of their own and recorded shots on tape with a 45 and with a 38 and with a 32 and i think with a 22 these effects then could be played directly through the line so that it didn't flatten out and become just a, a dull pop mm-hmm.
14: well the patrol out is scout sergeant a thousand yards between men if there's any indians around i want to know it the men will watch us at the cabin for arm signals right sir and then join mr sybert's and me down there Move out. Yes, sir.
3: Follow me, Mr. Savage.
25: This is the story of the West that few people hear. The stories of our everyday struggles, shameful acts, and triumphs. This is the Veiled West. (laughs) It's a shame your dog's sense of smell isn't as keen as a werewolf thinks. Hey, now just a minute there. You can't talk to... Silence, Thrall. Don't speak to the mayor that way. That's better. What I meant was
26: that the ranch was sold to another werewolf. They're surrounding the city now, Amos. I thought we had this under control. Dr. Eli Decker.
27: It's wonderful to meet you, Happy. Tell me, is the Coyote Crossing Ranch a friendly
23: place for us?
18: (laughs) Well, It's full of us. Even the lady who owns it, actually. Why don't you come down and meet everyone? Do you need a place to stay in town?
28: Don't worry about us, Sheriff. I promise. We take care to make sure the town is safe.
25: I'm sorry we bothered you, Miss Vera. If you ever need anything, you send someone for us and we'll come running. Well, werewolves, every one of them, just like the other two ranchers.
26: I have a feeling I can arrange something unfortunate.
19: Listen to the story of the old West that you've never heard before. Visit
28: theveiledwest.com. Well, since my
8: baby left me, will I find a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lonely Street. That. I-
1: April 1, 1956 was Easter Sunday. The cover of the Los Angeles Times spoke of Christians braving the threat of war to visit the Resurrection site in the Middle East. In the States, the rock and roll era was officially here. Five days later, Elvis Presley would sign a three-film deal at Paramount Pictures. By the end of the month, his single Heartbreak Hotel would rise to the top of the charts selling out in stores, and blasting from radios and jukeboxes alike. It would remain at the top, clear into June. Perhaps it was a fitting epitaph for the dramatic radio industry, but don't tell that to the famed crew of Hollywood actors, who were as busy as ever.
4: That show took on a personality of its own very much like Gunsmoke did. A lot of the same actors worked, and this was a sort of a CBS group more than anything else.
16: About that time, I think they figured there were approximately 1,500 members mm-hmm. of AFRA and about 400 of us did all the work.
4: I think With that would be a maximum at 400. 300
25: more. Uh,
16: that I know in my own case, I was doing at one time and another as high as five shows a day, having somebody rehearse for me at NBC. See, They were all very close to the studios, do two or three <laughs> one-man families.
29: Uh.
20: (laughs) (laughs) Betty,
3: I did Betty (laughs) It was an
29: interesting show to work Very interesting show (laughs) Good people
26: (laughs) We used the coffee clutch Every Saturday morning was marvelous Because uh, we would get there at about 10 in the morning And nobody picked up a script until about a quarter after 11 The first hour was devoted to What have you done lately, you know We were probably closer to each other For those years than... uh, we were to
1: our own families. It seemed there was no role these men and women couldn't play. Speaking of which,
22: Harry and I frequently were twin villains on a show. We never knew whether Harry was going to be the high-voiced villain or the low-voiced
3: <laughs>
22: <laughs> Whoever got the first line had his choice. of <laughs>
1: The CBS Sunday afternoon schedule that day featured a New York Philharmonic concert, News and Music with André Baruch. And at 6.05, Burgess Meredith signed on with Just Entertainment.
9: From Chicago, the Wrigley people present Just Entertainment. Autry is away for a few weeks of rest, the Wrigley people are happy to bring you a pleasant variety of just entertainment, featuring some of your favorite personalities. And here to play host once again is Mr. Burgess Meredith.
3: Thank you.
20: Thank you, Joe Foss, and hello again, everybody. I hope you're enjoying a very happy Easter and that the entertainment we planned for you will help somehow to make it a little happier still. So make room in your Easter basket for such good eggs as the lovely Felicia Sanders, the sensational something Smith and the Redheads, the sparkling arrangements of Caesar Petrillo and his orchestra, and because ham is traditional on Easter, I'm going to be joined by another one, Melvin Douglas. <laughs> Thank you, thank you very much. Anyway, brothers and sisters, help yourself to some different delicious juicy fruit chewing gum and enjoy a pleasant treat while you enjoy the show, which the orchestra will open with Avalon.
1: The acting veteran, then 49 years old, had seen his film opportunity shrink in the wake of the Red Scare. But he'd soon star opposite Charles Lawton in a Broadway production of Major Barbara, his career would fully rebound by the end of the decade. When Just Entertainment signed off, Gunsmoke signed on at
9: 6.30. Gunsmoke, brought to you by L&M Filters. Make today your big red letter day. Change to L&M. So good to your taste.
10: I swear this is the lonesomest looking ranch in the whole state of Kansas, Mr. Jones.
2: That's no place for a man who likes company, Chester.
10: Three days' ride from Dodge, 150 miles. It'd get me talking to myself.
2: Now, let's driven old Tub Claver a little crazy.
11: Not so crazy. He ain't finally selling out.
2: Yeah, let's leave him here, huh? Mm-hmm.
10: laid eyes on old Tup in over a year. Yeah,
2: he hasn't changed any. Has and that's what worries me. What do you mean? Well, I'm not sure the old man's competent when it comes to business like selling a ranch.
11: Oh, there he is. Hey, Top! Hello! Hello! Look at his hair. He must use it for a napkin. That's bear grease,
10: Chester. Yeah. Looks like he ain't washed it since he was a boy.
11: How, oh,
2: Tup? How are you, huh?
10: Fit to fight day or night. Hello, Tup. Well, I see you're looking sloppy as ever, Chester. I'm looking sloppy. (laughs) What, Tup, knock on your old (laughs) high. Never mind. Well, I. Never mind. Well, now that's how I remember him.
2: (laughs) Tup, uh, we've been up on the Republican River. We uh, heard that you're selling your ranch.
10: Yeah, want to buy it?
2: No, 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 no. We just thought we'd stop by and see how you're doing.
10: Oh, I'm doing right good, Marshal.
2: Well, uh, why are you selling, Tup?
10: Oh, I'm tired of being alone. Need help out here, getting old. Yeah.
2: How much are you asking for the place?
10: Ten thousand. And it ain't worth a dollar more. You want it?
2: <laughs> no, I don't want it. Uh, but have you found anybody who's interested?
10: That's why I'm riding to Dodge next week. I'll find somebody. Well, I
2: wish you'd come see me when you get there.
10: Yeah, maybe I will when I get there. You can buy me a drink, Marshal. <laughs>
2: I'll be glad to, Tup. Well, so long.
10: Bye, Tup. Goodbye. If the ocean was fisky and I was a duck... Good, Mr. In the Dillon, door. ain't that
2: awful? Uh, he's a fine old man, Chester, for all his loose-minded
11: ways.
10: He's half simple. He ain't got a lick of sense. The first <laughs> fella who comes along is gonna rob him blind.
2: No, he isn't, Chester. Not if I can help it.
6: All the early comedians were... Damn good writers, mm. like Benny and Bob Hope and Fred Allen and Ed Wynn and these people, they knew from vaudeville how to put things together. From
4: Hollywood, it's the new Edgar Bergen Hour with Charlie McCarthy.
20: I'll clip to help me, I'll mow you down.
1: <laughs> Edgar Bergen at 7.05 p.m was in the midst of his final season on radio. The comedy giant had been on CBS since 1949, with his show moving to 60 minutes 2 years prior. It's at home season rating of 3.9 was second highest on the air amongst evening programs. seashell expert, oncologist Dr. Ernest you.
9: And here they are now, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
20: me 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 me. Y- you know, folks. Me 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 me. What is this? Me 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 me. Bergen, what is going on here? What's the matter? Charlie, I've got a little surprise for you. Yeah. Yes. You mean you're switching tonight? You're going to sit on my knee? No, no. <laughs> No, I just wanted to tell you that I've been taking vocal lessons Oh, no Yes, yes I intend to sing on next week's show You're going to sing? Yes Oh, steady stomach, steady (laughs) 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 Not bad, huh? (laughs) Sounds a little like Nelson Eddy Yeah, yeah with a mouthful of hot shortening bread. Uh, <laughs> uh, my teacher. Sure, your teacher, sure. My teacher says that I'm just about ready to sing professionally. Yeah, she does, huh? Yeah. There's just one thing I lack, and that's the proper gestures when I sing. I don't know exactly, you know, what to do with my hands. I see. Well, how about holding them over your mouth? No,
3: no. <laughs> I just
20: love to clother him. I just... just... Oh, I say, how'd you do, chaps? Well, wasn't that enough? Oh, Ray, Ray, yes. You're (laughs) just a man I want to see. Oh, really? Yes, I want you to be the first to know that I'm going to sing on the show next week, and I was just wondering, Um, who should accompany me? Oh. Well, uh, might I suggest uh, a bodyguard? (laughs) Uh, Nice going, Ray Nice going Yeah, I don't understand, Ray That coming from you I thought you'd be tickled to death To accompany me at the piano Uh, Yes, but Edgar, old boy After all, I have to live with myself And that takes guts (laughs) 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 I'm waiting for your answer, Ray Uh, Yeah, I know, Edgar, (laughs) but... Watch it, Ray Next week, you may be playing piano in the unemployment office's Philharmonic. <laughs> An unemployment <laughs> office? I yeah. say, Charles, you don't really think that Edgar would... Uh, uh... Oh, no. Just look who he's got warming up in the wings back there.
1: Bergen would wrap up a 22-season run on July 1st.
9: Any questions, Now, new Creamy Prom, the first and only permanent with homogenized waving cream. And White Rain, the rainwater soft lotion shampoo that leaves your hair sunshine bright, present R. Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden.
10: It's time once again for another comedy episode of
9: R. Miss Brooks Transcribed, but first...
10: It's creamy, creamy, creamy.
16: Imagine
9: a home permanent that actually waves new softness and manageability right into your
16: hair. Number one, they didn't want to take Dick Crenna into TV. Mm. They asked me to make tests with some boys, and I said, what for? And they said, for Walter Denton. I said, you're crazy. People know Dick, and they said, he's too old. I said, but he doesn't look it, he doesn't sound it, and they'll love him. So they pressured me to make the test, and I said, I'll do it if you make a test of Dick, too. And there was no question after that. Then they came to me partway through and said, we're going to make a big change. Just keep you and Gail Gordon, that's all. Send you to Hollywood. I said, it's not going to work, and I bet I have my people back in three months, and I did. Mm. But that spoiled it.
24: They changed it from a uh, public school to a private school and uh, from a high school to a grammar school. And
16: it never recovered from that. That was really the reason we went off the air, and it's a shame. We were caught in a game that is played by an awful lot of producers and sponsors. When the time comes to renew, each one pretends that the sponsor and the network say, well, the show's ratings are going down a little, and it's not as good as it used to be. So then the creative people get very upset, and they come and say, but we've got a great new idea, you know? And then they change it, and it ruins the whole thing.
9: The English has inflicted a number of severe restrictions on his school in the past. Last week, he set up a series of petty offenses for which his students and faculty were to be fined course, these fines were purely voluntary.
16: Yes, like income taxes. I was telling my landlady about his latest injustice last Thursday at breakfast. Of course, Mrs. Davis, the fines all go into a fund which will be used to buy a brand new statue for the library. What kind of a statue? A statue of the man who Osgood Conklin admires and respects more than anyone else in the world. Who's that? Who else?
1: Osgood Conklin.
16: (laughs) You see, when he first thought of the idea, he put.
1: Radio's most listened-to evening show, with an at-home rating of 4.3, was Eve Arden's hour, Miss Brooks. It was in the midst of its seventh season on radio and fourth on TV. But Arden was souring on upper management's meddling with the show. The brass had changed the format and replaced Robert Rockwell with Gene Barry. The TV ratings fell. The producers brought back Rockwell as Boynton in mid season, but it didn't help.
16: Feed the kitty, feed the kitty. he caught you yet,
1: A film version of Our Miss Brooks was released on April 24th. In it, Connie and Mr. Boynton were finally engaged to be married. The TV run would come to an end a month later on May 11th. The radio version would run for one more season in repeats. Eve Arden would move on to other projects.
16: rang for the next period, and Mr. came by and me a dime for not being in my classroom.
24: When the uh, R. Brooks series ended, then you came back shortly thereafter with the Eve Arden show. Yes. And that, what
16: happened to me there, we made a good pilot, which sold immediately. Then they came to me and said, well, we're on now, but you can't have the same producer, director, or writers when you go back on. I said, How can you do that? They said, Oh, we'll put 15 writers on it. Of course, it was really more like
11: a plebiscite.
16: Well, you put 15 people in a little screening room and have them look at one thing, and they all come up with a whole, a totally different idea. So it just didn't homogenize, you know.
20: Those fines add up, you know. You poor dear. It has been an expensive week for you, hasn't
1: it? For more information on our Miss Brooks, so today. tune into Breaking Walls, episode 106. You can
3: get me on a vagrancy raft. Oh well, maybe it's for
16: the best. The less I have on me, the less I can donate to the bus. Uh, for the bus.
1: On Easter Sunday, 1956, before any of those aforementioned programs signed on, Fort Laramie took to the air at 5.30 p.m. with Lost Child.
8: At the gallop! Oh!
21: Captain of Cavalry.
8: Patrol, halt!
14: Sergeant Gorse. Yes, sir. Dismiss the patrol. I've got to report to Major Daggett. Yes, sir. And see that their horses are babied right this time.
3: Yes, sir.
10: Patrol. There's his mouth.
21: Yes, mouth.
14: Captain Quint's reporting, sir. I... Oh, I'm sorry, sir. I thought you'd be alone. That's all right, Captain. Oh, This is Major Barlow. Major. My pleasure, Captain. Well, how did your patrol fare? Routine, sir. No sign of trouble. Good.
13: Oh, sit down, Quince. Uh,
14: Thank you, sir. Major Barlow
13: is here on orders from General Staff in Washington. He's surveying all the posts in our department.
18: I have only a few days here, and then I'm going on to Fort Dodge. General Custer's command? Yes. I'm looking forward to that. Read hundreds of reports, and certainly that 7th Cavalry is doing the best job with the hostiles that can be done. You haven't surveyed them yet. Well, not personally, no. The record reads victory after victory. I wish we could say the same about the second. Well, the circumstances are a little different, Major. They're waging open warfare from Fort Dodge.
14: Here, we try to keep hostilities at a minimum, maintain peace. Captain, how much firefight have we seen in the last month? Oh, three or four skirmishes is all, sir. Mostly with dog soldiers driven from the Fort Dodge section. Dog soldiers?
13: Uh, There are two kinds of Cheyenne. That's the tribe we've been most interested in around here lately. Dog soldiers are the warriors. They wear three feathers. Oh. The ones that don't wear the
18: feathers are the reservation peaceful kind. We don't bother either unless they make us. Yeah. Well, Major, it's the belief of many members of the staff, including myself, that a soft policy such as yours is bound to lead to an uprising. I hope you're wrong, sir. The hostiles see it as a sign of weakness. The only way to enforce peace with these savages is to maintain constant pressure, continual display of strength. Will we get a directive to that effect, Major, or is that a private opinion? It's my opinion at the moment. I can assure you I'll do everything I can to see a directive based on it. Now, Captain, if you'll show me to your troop area. Yes, sir. Major Barlow will be attached to your troop during his stay.
14: You'll place yourself at his disposal, do everything possible to assist him in making his survey. It's an honor, sir.
18: First thing I want to do, Captain, is make a complete tour of the reservation camps. I want a first-hand look at the natives. Their condition, their attitudes, extent of their weapons, so on. Camps are pretty well
14: scattered, Major. It'll take some time to cover all of them. These reservation people should be centralized so they can be watched. They've lived in small village bands for hundreds of generations. They, they kind of need stretching they're room. They're
18: prisoners of war, Captain. Prisoners of war live under imposed conditions, not their own. Yes, sir.
3: Captain
22: Quince.
18: Yes, Sergeant.
14: At ease. What is it? There's a man waiting for you in the orderly room, sir. Ben Coons. What does he want? He says his stepson was stolen by the Cheyenne. What's that? We'll go in and find out. Thank you, Sergeant. I've just heard about your son, Coons. How'd it happen? How do
13: I know? My place is only five miles outside of town, and he was gone when I got home last night. Look at this. Cheyenne scalping knife. It was stuck in my door. I've had a Cheyenne lodge oath hanging over my head for a year. That filthy devil finally found a way to get to me. You mean someone in particular? One of the worst of the breed. Wasaya. Yeah, I've heard of him.
14: Quite a warrior. You
18: say he's had a
13: personal hatred for you, Mr. Coons? Ever since last summer. I was scouting for the 7th. run across his camp on that big north swing of the Solomon. You know, Captain, just before it flows into Grand Valley. Yeah, I know. Well, I led the troopers into it, and during the fracas, Wasaya's brother, was killed. That's when he took the oath to put me under. Or do worse. Now he's done it. Taken Billy.
14: I'm sorry about your son, Coons. But the way I heard the story of that attack... Wasaya's wife and eight-year-old son were killed, too,
18: by one of our scouts.
14: I didn't have nothing to do with it. I, I did what I was paid
18: to. Captain, the man's child's been kidnapped. I see no reason to discuss anything else. The army's supposed to
13: protect the civilians.
18: What makes you so sure it was, Wasaya Well,
13: he brought his band into the Laramie foothills two days ago... Put that and the knife and his oath together, and there's no place else to look.
14: Where'd you hear he was in this part of the country?
13: Your breed scout, Quanto, got wind of it.
14: I should think you would have learned about it in your patrol, Captain. No, we were working in the other direction, Major. No.
13: I heard this morning. Right away, I got the feeling about what happened, and I started looking for sign around my place. I found it right enough. A wash about a half mile away. Tracks of nine ponies headed south toward the hills. I want that Cheyenne dog brought in and hung up where I can see it. Hmm.
14: Sergeant Gorse? Yo. Go look up Quanto. He says there's a band of Cheyenne in the Laramie foothills. I want to talk to their head man. Find out where they are. Pick out ten good men for the patrol, including you.
18: Yes, sir. You'll make provision for me to go with you, Captain.
14: There won't be much in the way of provision, Major. But you're welcome, sir. Coons, you go tell your story to Major Daggett. As Soon as I get word from him, we'll move out. All right, Captain. Oh, Coons. How old is your stepson?
13: Nine years next month.
14: If he's still alive... Same age Wasiah's son would have been. Well, if they're together, I don't think you have to worry about Billy being anything but alive and well
13: you got a lot to learn about Cheyenne,
14: Captain. Maybe you could teach me. You want to come along? I'll
13: go talk to
18: the Major. There goes a man with a bad conscience. What about your own, Captain? You seem to feel more sympathy for the savage than you do for this poor man who's lost a child. I hardly think your attitude right for a man in your position. I suppose it won't look good in your survey report, sir, but there's a popular
14: idea out here I've never been able to swallow and keep down. That whatever a white man does to an Indian is all right, but whatever an Indian does is all wrong.
18: You and I are soldiers, Captain. We do not set policy. We follow it. Yes, sir.
22: You know, those guys were absolute geniuses. Bill James, Tommy Hanley, Ray Kemper. They had the best-sounding gunshots that you have ever heard on radio. And they went up in uh, Franklin Canyon. And they recorded shot after shot with the reverberation and all. And the way they would walk down the boardwalk, uh, rattling the spurs... Oh, yeah. They... Any move that that Bill Conrad made... The squeak of a chair. Yeah. uh, was Just just marvelous. It gave a whole dimension to the show. And the boys on Dragnet were awfully good at that, too. Those were the two uh, real prizes when it came to sound effects.
14: Fast water quarter talked about just around this bend, Captain. Yeah, I know. I caught some beautiful trout in that stretch. That's where their camp's supposed to be.
18: Hadn't you better order carbines at the ready? A show of preparedness, Captain?
14: little late for that, Major. They've had their eye on us for at least an hour.
18: So why do you bring a small force into a situation like this? Surely you don't trust them not to catch us in ambush.
14: I don't trust them, Major. I know them. The best place for ambush was about two miles back. We've gone beyond the point of carbines at the ready. There you are, Major, up ahead, waiting for us. Those are dog soldiers. Some of the best mounted fighters in the world. We're well outnumbered, Captain. We always are. Now, they'll come in to meet us at full run and screaming like banshees. That's their way. They don't want you to know whether they mean to be friendly or to open your throat. If we had our carbines ready, their run wouldn't be exactly friendly. Patrol! Halt! Keep your hands away from your weapons, men, unless I tell you different. Stay relaxed the way you do on the parade ground when I want you to be alert. Uh, You should have ordered out your full troop, Captain. Captain, here they come. I see them, Gorse. Act like this happens every day, men. Just rest easy in your saddles and talk to
18: each other. Captain, order carbines at the ready. that an order, Major? It's common sense. Show them we'll fight. Don't draw your pistol, Major.
14: You'll spook them for sure waving that thing around. They'd have opened up by now if they were going to. Bye. Who is chief among you? Which of you is Wasaya?
17: I am Wasaya. Why do the soldiers come to us? We have done no wrong.
14: I brought you your scalping knife, Wasaya. Here.
17: Where is the one called Coons? The woman killer? The child killer? Did he die of fear when he found my
14: sign?
18: That insolent beggar.
14: He says that you came for vengeance. And that you stole his son. I have stolen no son. You were at his house, and now the boy is missing.
17: I have stolen no boy.
14: Oh, he's lying, Captain.
17: What does the high soldier say? I say
14: you are lying. Major.
17: I speak true. We'll search your camp and find out how much truth. No, we want no soldiers in our camp.
22: Ain't there any way you can stop him, oh, Captain? You ever been able to stop me, Gore? Well, I'd sure try if our he went off half cocked like he come is. To
17: our camp there is trouble. We want
18: no trouble. We are at peace. You don't want us in your camp because you're lying. The search is going to be made. And if you resist us, I'll see the whole 2nd Cavalry out to do the job. One do Nicano!
11: Patrol!
8: Carbines! That's the ready! Boots your carbines! What was that, Captain Sorry, Major? They're going back to their camp.
18: Oh. Those insolent. Well, at least I've seen a prime example of what a soft policy brings about. The hostiles move up here from the 7th Cavalry area. Undoubtedly, they rest, repair equipment and go back to take up the attack again.
14: Some of them do, some of them don't. There are good ones and bad ones with
18: these people, same as there are with whites. Well, until such time as a magician is attached to the second who can distinguish between the two, Captain, pressure should be exerted against all of them. We'll return to the fort. I'm going to recommend that at least two troops are assigned to this matter until that boy's recovered. With
14: your permission, sir, I'll stay here. Sergeant Gorse will take command of the patrol and escort you.
18: Why on earth stay
14: here? I need your statement at the fort. You have plenty of other witnesses, sir. Before you come back with two troops of cavalry, I'd... I'd sort of like to see what one man can do in that camp.
18: You're thinking as an individual again, Captain? A hard habit to break, sir.
14: If it doesn't work, it'll make a strong point in your survey report.
18: Very well. I trust you don't expect commendation on your stubbornness. I do plan to make reference to your unmilitary behavior. It'd be
14: better if we could send old brass shoulders in alone. Watch your manner, Sergeant. Don't you want me to stay with you? Thank you, Goris, but I don't need you. This may look crazy, but I don't think I'll run into any trouble. Is that young'un's in there you will, sir? Well, yeah, I don't figure he is. I've been thinking. If I was Wasiah and had kidnapped the boy, I sure wouldn't have left a knife to point the finger at me. And I would have hightailed it out of these parts a long time before this. I sure hope you're right, Captain.
18: Sergeant! I'm ready to go! Mm,
14: not far enough. Watch your manners, Gorse. Yes, sir. Good luck.
1: This episode featured Ralph Moody Clayton Post Dick Beals and Lawrence Dobkin I remember one
26: morning uh, I was struggling with something or other and Norman pressed the button and said don't even try for it don't even try for it the audience by this time knows your voice don't try to make them different from the other 85 heavies we've already done (laughs) that was, you know
3: I used to play um,
16: either, you know, Mexican senoritas or a couple of times, Harry Bartel and I did Indian.
26: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Remember? Or you don't remember? No, no, I'm laughing at Harry Bartel.
3: Oh, all right. (laughs)
14: Easy, easy.
8: Stop, soldier!
17: You do not come in our camp.
14: Then come out here, wasaya so we can talk without being bothered by others. Do we talk about the son I did not steal? I believe you. I believe that you didn't steal him.
17: Your high soldier is blind. His words cut like flint. He's new to this country. He has
14: much to learn. He went back. Does he bring more soldiers to attack us? That's what's in his mind now. It'll take a day so you have time to move your camp. Strange words from a soldier. Why do you stand with me
17: when the high soldier says I lie?
14: I've heard much of you, Messiah. If you were going to steal a son... You'd do it better than this.
17: I say this. The days are gone when a son brought only gladness to his father. Now the father looks to the day when his son reaches manhood and sees nothing but sadness and hunger and fighting a war that will not be won. Some nights, when sleep runs away from me, I think of my son... And I am happy that he is not with me to share the trouble that follows us. I would steal no son. I have nothing to give him. Do you truly want peace, Messiah? A peace with honor, yes. We are tired of fighting and running.
14: This is a small thing, a missing child. ...when you measure it against the bigness of the trouble that we're all in... ...all the tribes, all the army units. But it's a thing that could stir everything up again. Word from the Major could go to Washington. His words from his mind. They'd be believed because no other words could go to say they were wrong. I'd like to stop it, Wasaya. Would you help me? How would a Cheyenne help a soldier... If you and I could find the boy and take him back, everyone would know that you were a man of honor and truth and that you lead a peaceful band. Then the high soldier's word would be lies. You'd be right, and he'd be wrong. For that, I would help. But how? Have any other new bands moved into this section that could have taken the boy? One Shoshone and one from my tribe. Could you find out if they have him? Yeah. Will you do it? I will. While you do that, I'll try and get a line on him. Will you meet me in the wash near Coon's place at sunrise tomorrow? Do you know what you asked me to do? To help the man who killed my
17: son and my wife?
14: I know, Wasaya.
17: We meet at sunrise, soldier.
14: You hide well.
17: What did you learn? The boy is not with the Shoshones and not
14: with the Cheyenne. Then we have another way to go. He has an uncle in the Rock River settlement. He's talked to some of his young friends about going to live with him. He told them the trail he'd take. If I put you on it, Could you pick up his sign and follow it? I have followed older sign. We'll go then. here. All right. Look there, a piece of cloth. I'd say he has torn clothing and a sore knee.
17: He rested here. Slept, I think. See, the glass is pressed down.
14: He's traveled a long way for an eight-year-old.
17: I think not much farther than this. He started very slow from here.
14: You home.
15: No, I won't go back. He...
14: It's all right, Billy. Who is he? His name is Wasaya. He's a friend of mine.
17: You are a good, strong boy to come this far. If I had
14: a son, I would hope he would be so strong. You've got a nasty bruise on your face, Billy. You must have taken a bad fall. He hit me. Who did?
15: My paw with a stick. He hit me till I ran away.
14: Here, let's see under your shirt. Yeah, he sure did hit you, didn't
15: he? I won't go back. My paw hit me again.
14: Come on, come on, stand up, Billy. Look, I... I don't blame you for running away. I guess I'd have done the same thing.
3: I won't go back.
14: If you want to live with your uncle, I... I think we can work it out.
15: In Rock River?
14: Yeah. And instead of trying to get there all by yourself, how would you like it if you could ride with the cavalry?
15: By myself? On a horse?
14: Yes. Horse all your own. Now. Now, you ready to start back?
15: I won't stay with my paw.
17: You won't have to. Come here, boy. You ride with me on my pony.
15: Oh. No, I don't want to.
14: Why, sure you do, Billy. Think what you can tell your friends. I'll bet none of them have ridden with a real Cheyenne warrior. Come on now. Show them how brave you are. Come here, boy.
17: Am I strong enough to lift you up? He <laughs> oh. not know the feel of a white man on his back. You all right, Billy? Does
15: this pony run fast?
17: Oh, yes. Faster than prairie fire.
3: On. <laughs>
24: Our guest is a man who was as busy as anybody during the great radio days and the days that followed as well. He's Dick Beals, and we're glad to be here with you today. Well,
15: thank you very much. It's a pleasure. You had a, uh, a very long career in what we call the golden age of radio. About when did it start? It started for me on the campus of Michigan State University. It was Michigan State College then, although we were a university. Mm-hmm. That was uh, fall of 1945 when Michigan State, thanks to the general manager of the radio station, convinced me that I'd be better off being a radio actor taking children's parts than trying to be a sports announcer, because I didn't sound like a sports announcer. So. The training started not in my classes, which were training me to run a radio station, Mm -hmm. plus the other general college courses, but then they had some radio shows on that campus. One especially was rural school music time, and there was a part of a little 10-year-old boy on that, and I played that for three years. But the direction was so good to teach articulation and never running, but running, and sound your vowels and your consonants and doing live shows every week in front of an audience was just excellent training. That moved me on as a senior to Detroit where I started working the Lone Ranger, Green Hornet Challenge, the Yukon shows. Then in uh, December of 51, I decided to drive to Hollywood and make it a try out there and uh, I've been there ever since.
14: Great soldier. They're forming the two troops for the big search. I go no farther. I know how you feel because I felt the same way riding into your camp. But the major from Washington won't believe you had a part of this unless you ride in with me. You have my word that everything will be all right. I go on your word. Right up to the Major, with
18: Captain Quint's reporting, sir. Well, this savage did steal the boy. In spite of his surrender, he's to be punished. This is no surrender. Give me the details, Captain.
14: I'd rather you ask the boy, sir.
18: All right, son. What did he do to you?
15: He didn't steal me. He found me. I ran away because my paw hit me with a stick. He does it lots of times, and I won't go back. I just won't.
18: Order the troops dismissed. Yes, sir. Prepare to dismount.
10: Prepare to dismount.
14: Come on, Billy. We'll find you something to eat. Was I... uh... I'd stay out of the 7th Cavalry territory for a while. The high soldier is going to be moving that way.
17: There is very far place where there are many antelope. I think my people are hungry for antelope.
14: My thanks
17: go with you. Mine stay with you. You grow strong, boy. One day you can beat your stepfather. I leave my vengeance... With you. Goodbye!
14: Come on, Billy.
3: Captain?
14: Yeah, Gorse? Old Ironside sure don't want to admit there's such a thing as a good engine, does he? He's a better soldier than we are, Sergeant. What? He operates strictly from the book. Maybe in the next situation... The book will be right.
21: Fort Laramie is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald... and stars Raymond Burr as Lee Quince, Captain of Cavalry with Vic Perrin as Sergeant Gorse. The script was specially written for Fort Laramie by Gil Dowd, with sound patterns by Bill James and Ray Kemper. Musical supervision by Amerigo Marino. Featured in the cast were Lawrence Dobkin, Clayton Post, Ralph Moody, Jack Moyles, and Richard Beals. Each Monday through Friday evening, CBS Radio rings you in on the fabulous adventures of insurance investigator Johnny Dollar. Just by decoding the cryptic items in his expense account, you'll learn how a dime spent in a phone booth can lead to a scene of the wildest suspense. Then on to a sum spent for an airplane ticket, or an item for a new shoelace, and again you'll find yourself smack in the middle of a thrill-packed situation. Each new adventure moves the story forward to its dramatic payoff, When Johnny Dollar solves yet another case of arson, fraud, or murder. Every Monday through Friday night, over most of these same stations, hear yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
12: Are you new to old-time radio? A
6: hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense
26: shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic
25: story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society
23: is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcasts from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. All right, we'll be back to more commercials that Vic and I didn't do. Or uh, <laughs> <laughs> sitting here going, why didn't we get that yeah, job? I, I can <laughs> sing. <laughs> 18 after 7 o'clock, we're with the veteran golden age of radio actor Vic Parent
22: On NBC, there was a show called Homicide O'Cane. And it was written by a guy who used a pen in one hand and a bottle in the other. <laughs> and, and it was due on the air at 3.15 in the afternoon. By 3.10... He had maybe six of the eight pages written. Mm. And while the show was on the air, he'd be typing away. They'd be rushing the carbons and the originals into the studio. And he never missed closing a show. He always managed to get the last page in in time. Huh? What do you do with the
23: bottle? Well, well I, I think maybe uh, the show and the bottle finished about yeah. simultaneously.
3: <laughs> <laughs> thanks, I'll
23: be thanks for your call That's this evening,
3: Fascinating sir. story. Thank you so much.
18: Hello everybody, how are y'all? This is yours truly, Allen Free. Get your dancing shoes on and welcome to the Camel Rock and Roll Dance Party!
21: From New York City, the home of rock and roll, we welcome you to the big beat in popular music in America, brought to you transcribed by Camel. Today's best like cigarette. Camel's give more pure pleasure to more smokers today than any other brand. And here's the king of rock and roll himself, Alan Freed. <laughs> Thank you, Vern Bennett, and
18: welcome to our Camel Rock and Roll Dance Party, starring one of the greatest names in music, the swingin'est band in the land, Count Basie and his orchestra with Joe Williams and our special guest stars of the week, Laverne Baker and the Teenagers. And away we go. First up, Count Basie and the orchestra with you for me. Get
1: April 8th's Fort Laramie episode was preempted to cover the final round of Golf's Masters Tournament, which was won by Jack Burke, Jr., The following Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern, a new rock and roll program debuted on CBS. It was hosted by Alan Freed, sponsored by Camel, and just another sign that the times were a-changin'. The days of orchestral remotes were long over. The next afternoon, Fort Laramie broadcast Stagecoach Stop. By 1956, many of the West Coast radio actors were also doing TV and film work. Each episode of Fort Laramie was rehearsed and recorded in a single evening at CBS's Studio One. Like Gunsmoke, Fort Laramie had strong female roles, realistic and sympathetic portrayals of Native Americans, and an emphasis on life's frontier struggles.
8: At the gallop!
21: Captain of cavalry.
27: Uh, easy,
11: boy. He looks good, don't he? You got the yeah. whole day, Harrison? Oh, I'm moving, Sergeant. Well, that mount
22: will chill and die of pneumonia. You don't rub him brisk and get some elbow grease behind it.
11: Yes, sir, Sergeant. Why you suppose he does it, Sergeant? Who does what? Captain Quince. Up for Reveille he was... An often riding. Habit, maybe. It was a clean
22: morning, had a feel to it. Riding off alone, I'd like that myself.
11: There's a touch of spring in there, all right. Buffalo grass, as green as can be. I was down at the corral this morning, and... Even at low water, the old army was rippling along like it had a song in it. Harrison. Mm-hmm. Yes, Sergeant? You think you could manage to blanket that mount for you right your next poem? Hmm?
22: Well, oh, I guess I'm holding you up. Captain says he threw a nail. I told him I'd see the ferrier got a look at it.
11: Right forefoot looks like. I meant to see to it.
22: I got business at the saddlery anyway.
11: Uh, Sergeant... I'd sure admire some outdoor duty today, if you could arrange it. Stable detail, sort of outdoors, Harrison. In and out. I was thinking more like the hay yard, or lending a hand in the post garden, or like that. I'd be obliged. Anything outdoors? Anything at all, Sergeant. You see up there on the bluff by the old cemetery? I'm looking that way. That white patch, top of the rise... Oh, sure, I see that. Well, now, that's a patch of wild daisies, Harrison. Anybody asks, you tell them you got my leave to go up there and pick them. Oh, Sergeant. It's outdoor work. I don't aim to get myself laughed right off this post. It'd be a useful service you was
22: performing, Harrison. Officers are having a fancy ball tonight at Old Bedlam. Well, they might give a stripe or two to the trooper who saw their decorations.
11: I tell you, Sergeant, I I like this stable detail just fine. More I think of it, more I like it. Glad to oblige. Anytime, Harrison. You're not getting me three stripes someday, like as not I'll mosey all over the post, too, on a fine spring day.
22: I could make them daisies in order, Harrison.
11: Why, look down there, Sergeant Gorse. Uh, Ain't that a stage coming over the bridge? It is. He's riding on a flat wheel. Yeah, maybe that's why he's pulling into the fork this time of day. Being the wheelwright
22: so near the smithy and the saddlery, I'll just mosey on down there and see what's going on. Give me that lead rope, soldier.
11: No, here.
18: Get to your duty, Daisy. Dog.
11: Yes, Sergeant. <laughs>
30: And, and speaking of that, reminds me of Jack Johnstone. Oh yeah, who, uh, for whom we did so many shows yes. in New York, did the Philip Morris show with Jack, and of course he did things with great style.
15: Mm-hmm. He always
30: had his earphones, and he mm. was on the stage, and he conducted from the stage. Mm-hmm. And of course those audience shows were packed with people around the block waiting to get into to those huge theaters. But John. And Jack, we all played poker together, and he was very close to Jack, and Jack said, "Um, I'll tell you in a minute, and he brought out out this little black notebook about that big. And John said, well, what is it? And he said, every cent I make is put here. Mm -hmm. And he said, this is the most legitimate thing to present to the income tax. (laughs) And if you have saved every one of those little books that has Subway fare, Hamburger, Libuses <laughs> <yes, laughs> Down Below, CBS, <laughs> NBC, every single mm-hmm. cent he had written down. And I must say that when our grandson last year in, in the Yak found a little book uh, that... It had kind of a lid on it, it was, a, it was not really a book, it was a fake book, and you lifted it up, and it was full of those little books, yeah? Mm-hmm. Just like Jack Johnstone had told John about mm-hmm. And so here, as Luke looked in, he said, look at this, Grandma, 20 cents <laughs> cab from our
31: apartment to <laughs> NBC. <laughs> and,
30: and he had kept that record.
31: Well, what do you mean we'll have to put up here for the night? This is an army post. <laughs> uh, now, Ophie, settle yourself this minute. There's nothing but men here.
25: Now, ma'am, there ain't a stage built that'll run on three wheels.
31: But an army post? Why, we're women.
25: <laughs> well, oh, no! be that as it may, we, we got to put up here. It took all I had and then some to bring us clean to the fort. Now, the wheelwright tells me he can put us on the trail by sunup, and that's the level best we can do.
31: I declare, I don't know what. Homer off there in Virginia City, waiting for Ophie and me?
25: Well, you could maybe telegraph ahead if you think your husband will worry after you.
31: Well, I don't know what to make of you. Of course he'll worry. Homer's bound to worry. His wife and baby girl spending the night in the middle of nowhere at an army post. <laughs> oh, Ma. Ophie, if you oh Ma me once more, I'll bang you with my umbrella.
29: Oh, but there's one Ma coming right up to us. One what? A soldier, Ma. Oh, uh,
25: Sergeant Gorse. Stand right
22: behind you, Ophie. Wheelwright says you got trouble, Clay.
25: Yeah, all kinds, Sergeant. Oh, uh, meet up with Mrs. Klein-Hexel, her daughter, Miss Ophie, Sergeant Gorse. Ma'am? Miss Ophie?
31: Are you in charge here, young man? Well,
25: no, ma'am.
22: Not exactly.
31: Then I demand to be taken to whoever is. I want to telegraph Homer. I want to see with my own eyes the quarters for my daughter and me. Homer, and...
25: ma'am? That's Mr. Kleinhexel. He's in Virginia City. Oh.
31: Are you listening to me, young man?
25: Why, yes, ma'am. I. I. Do... Clay! Clay! Clay, where are you going? Well, I'm pretty sure that wheelwright needs a hand. I am sure thank you for taking over this way, well, Sergeant. Hey, now, Clay, you...
31: We've had no food since breakfast, young man. That'll have to be taken care of. Now, those carpet bags over there are ours, and they were brand new when we left Omaha. So, mind you, tend them easy. Of uh, Who did you say was in charge here? Well,
22: I didn't say, ma'am, but offhand, I'd say you was.
31: <laughs> Ophie, simmer simmer down. <laughs>
1: Featured prominently in this episode were Jeanette Nolan, Howard McNear, Jack Crucian, and Shirley Mitchell.
32: In studio with us tonight in Los Angeles, we have Shirley Mitchell, whose credits include being Alice Darling on the Old Fibber McGee and Molly program, also telephone operator Mabel on Jack Benny's radio and TV show, and uh, Shirley Whirly on Joan Davis and Rudy Valley, plus... Leela Ransom, the southern widow, on the great Gilder Sleeve. Good to have you with us, Shirley.
30: Thank you. It's lovely
32: to be here. And also Jack Crucian, who was just who? telling me, who? I have no idea. <laughs> the man has no... Credentials whatsoever, only 50 years in this business. Mm-hmm. When will you have the 50-year mark, 50, year March 50 years, September of next year, September of eighty eight. Who has uh, covered some, uh, some great ground. Uh, you, by the way, might be... And some with the rotten
19: thing. ground, too. Well,
32: all all ground is good ground if the paycheck doesn't bounce. <laughs> You're on the uh, Webster as uh, Papadopoulos, right? Papa Papadopoulos, Yeah, right. And also you've got... Uh, uh, you're working rags to riches. You were ac- nominated for Academy Award, I believe, in The Apartment. Is That's that correct. Right.
19: You shouldn't forget because um, once again, look at the pictures we drew. You know, just hearing voices. I could see those people. Mm-hmm. That's it. And you could hear the, the people in the background investigating the, the scene of the crime. It was, you know, uh, things were done so well. And, and the unobtrusive sound effects and the fact that people did take time to listen to one another when they were speaking That's to one right. another it's very unlike a lot of acting today where particularly visually Absolutely. there's a there, there's a uh, a feeling that people really don't listen, they just say words, and here in radio, you have to listen, you have to respond, and you have to think and so you know, you hear all those sighs, and you hear all that heavy breathing, and it's the way people talk. You know, it's the way we speak to one another. It's the way we speak to one another in everyday life. And consequently, when you did that in radio, people listening would believe.
29: Mm-hmm. The overlapping. The whole Everything. Thing. Yeah. yeah.
19: If it was yeah. necessary, sure, to overlap. Do you,
32: absolutely. Do you have to be, a, do you think, a better actor or actress to do radio? Oh,
29: absolutely. Absolutely. Really?
32: Because I think everything so. was
29: voice. Well a lot of film actors couldn't do radio, so that indicates to you right then, I mean they literally were not able to transpose the word into any sense. Right? And it
19: wasn't it wasn't so much that they couldn't read, you know, because that was a problem with some people who cannot I don't mean that they didn't know how to read. They knew how I to read meant, but... I meant that reading words off of a piece of paper become traumatic for some people, Mm -hmm. so that they lose the trend of what they're trying to do or trying to say. Whereas those of us who were fortunate enough to work in the business regularly had a certain, I I don't know what you'd call it, uh, uh, the word isn't talent either, it's facility. We had a facility to read the words off the piece of paper, make sense out of them as Shirley just said, Mm -hmm. and also to 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 make them mean, what the character meant, so that we were able to become performers in the body of the script and in the body of the character we were playing. How else could many of us have done multiple we characters? We couldn't,
29: you know. We, I mean, the face and the body didn't go with the voice and the character oh, that we sure. were playing. We were not. There were no boundaries to radio acting. If you had the voice and if you had, I think the talent. Let's be. Oh yes. Honest. Let's be, yeah, well, but the facility
19: to read was part of the town.
29: Oh.
27: And I just wondered if, uh, if you were in my position, what would you do, Captain?
14: Mm. What? What would you do? Uh, uh, I'm afraid I haven't been listening, Mr. Syberts. Sorry. Uh, what would I do about what?
27: Would you go alone if you didn't have a young lady to escort to the officers' ball tonight?
14: Oh, good Lord, I'd forgotten about that.
27: It's the first one since I've been here.
14: If you're smart, you'll get up a poker game. You could play right here in my quarters if you want.
27: Well, I was rather looking forward to the ball.
14: I'd sooner ride into an ambush.
27: You know, it's hard to picture in your mind a, a ball right here in Old Bedlam. It, it doesn't seem part of the West somehow.
14: It shouldn't be part of it. Yeah. Want a cigar, Syberts?
27: No, thank you, sir. Captain, you don't talk like you're planning to attend this evening.
14: I'm not. You sure? Mr. Syberts? the last ball I attended was on an order. Besides, I have some work I want to do tonight, if I can get the Major's permission.
27: Well, I I don't know, and it's your business, all right, sir, but uh, she thinks you're going to the ball. She? Miss Willa. I was over at the Sutler's store this morning, and Pliny, uh, Mr. Burgess, gave me his leave to ask Miss Willow to the ball. Well? But she means to go with you, Captain. I don't know why I didn't ask her. She seems right sure you will, though, before the day's out. Oh?
14: She seems content just to wait for you. Miss Willow's a pretty thing. She Makes a mistake, though, waiting for anyone. Captain, I wouldn't have asked her, but... There aren't many single ladies to choose from. I've got no claim on Miss Willow, Mr. Syberts, if that's what you mean. No,
27: it's more her claim I was thinking about. She's set on you, Captain Quince. That's a pure waste. Who is it? Captain Quince, Lieutenant Syberts, Major Daggett. Sir.
14: As you were, gentlemen. This isn't exactly official business. Yes, sir. I just looked in the ballroom on the way up. Looks like things are taking shape for
13: tonight.
27: Yes, sir, they are. Mrs. Daggett and the other wives are doing a fine job with the decorations.
14: Well, they enjoy that sort of thing. It's time we had some festivity around here. Yes, sir. That what you came to tell us, Major? I expect to see you both there, Captain Quince. There's something I want to talk to you about, Major. Both of you there. I don't know whether you've heard yet or not, but we have some guests
13: on the post. Mrs. Kleinhexel from Omaha and her daughter. Their stage broke
27: down. They'll be with us overnight. Uh, the daughter, sir. What about her, Mr. Seibert? Well, sir, in the interest of showing Fort Laramie's hospitality, what I mean is, if she's not otherwise engaged, I'd be proud to see her to the ball tonight.
14: (laughs) I think that's a good idea, Seibert. I would like to discuss something, Major. Yeah, so would I, Captain Quince. Then if you'll excuse me, Major, Captain. Uh, Mr.
13: Seibert, you'll find the young lady and a mother quartered next to the settler's store. Yes, sir.
14: Well, Lee, if we can forget that pink tea a while, Major. I told you, Lee, I expect you at that ball tonight. This is no mere whim of mine, and if I have to order you to be there, I will. We're not going to see eye to eye on that ever. You understand all about troop morale in the field. I never knew an officer to show greater concern for his men. But I think you owe something to your fellow officers, Captain. What do you mean? There's such a thing as post morale too. The junior officers admire you, they respect you. It'll mean something to them to see you sharing their off-duty entertainment, relaxation. You're a hard man to know, Lee. Hmm. Especially in a ball. I wouldn't insist if I didn't think it was important. I've been trying to tell you what I think's important ever since you came in. All right. Yellow Horse. He's still in the stockade. Yes, I know that. But I can't send him to Leavenworth till I receive orders from Washington. So far, they haven't come through. Can't you telegraph, Washington? Uh, In in an emergency. His renegade band of Sioux is still marauding. Tell me, does this have any connection with the fact that you left the post alone before Reveille this morning? I rode out to the reservation. Had a long talk with Eagle Wing. Hmm. I hope he understood it was unofficial, Captain. Eagle Wing and I talked only as men interested in peace... Well, at least he isn't a hostile, and no great friend of Yellow Horse, as I remember. He says a few of Yellow Horse's old band have come onto the reservation in the last few weeks. That could mean trouble, Major. A few hostiles on a reservation of four thousand? Mm, I don't think so, Captain. I'm not talking about a Sioux uprising. I'm talking about maybe six hostiles thinking to set Yellow Horse free. Eagle Wing said this. I said it. it could happen. <laughs> Suppose it could. I don't think it's likely. I do. This band's never had a leader like Yellow Horse. Never killed for gain or because the whites invaded his hunting grounds. He killed to kill because he loved to kill. He's their their inspirational leader. They'll come after him. All right, Lee. What is it you want? Move Yellow Horse. Move him? Yeah, over to Fort Kearney. Small details starting at dusk. Uh, I don't like it, Lee. He'd be that much closer to Leavenworth. No, no, I can't risk it. I'm on orders to secure Yellow Horse at Fort Laramie. I'd need more reason than you give me to go against him. Then I've said my piece, Major.
18: Lee, you, uh, you feel pretty keenly about this. Why?
14: Maybe it's not important I asked you a question. All right. Call it a symbol. We could have killed him when we took him. But we held something out to the Indians. A fair trial. White man's justice. Yellow horse was tried fairly. And sentenced fairly. The Indians know that. Yellow horse should pay for his killing. Legally. If an escape is arranged, even if he's killed in the attempt, he's a martyr to every red man because a white man killed him. Sure, I don't disagree with any of that, Lee. But your answer's still the same. It has to be. My orders are clear. I have to respect them. I wish I could count on your understanding. I wish I could give it to you, Major. All right, Captain. We both had our say. Now let's forget it. I'd like you to join my party this evening. That an invitation, sir? That is an order, Captain. Yes, sir.
1: Nearly all the scripts were written by either John Meston, Kathleen Height, John Dunkel, or Les Crutchfield.
6: I first came to know Les when... He was still working at Caltech as an engineer, but at that time, which must have been 46 or 47, he came in to see Bill Robeson with a script for A Columbia Workshop, which Bill bought, and Les was on his way toward being a very successful writer. Les worked with me on Escape, Romance, a number of shows, and when we did start Gunsmoke, it just was obvious that Les would have to be part of the family, which indeed he was.
1: But radio was changing, as John Dunkel remembered.
6: I think that the decisions
7: are made now by people who really have no training or understanding in the creative fields. They are mostly businessmen. Their only concern is, is economic. And the young people who move into the so-called creative spots, I don't know how they're supposed to have the
6: the understanding to do it because they have no training they They have no
7: background at all in any creative work. They don't understand writing, they don't understand directing, they don't understand anything about it. It's all economic.
6: And this began back in those days. Uh, it began with the great importance placed upon the sales department.
22: Howard liked to nip a little bit, didn't he? And We used to do two shows, two Gunsmoke shows. And after we finished the first one, we would break for lunch, and we'd all go over to Nicodell. But before we broke for lunch, Howard would take the second script and thumb all the way through it to see how many lines he had in the next show. If he only had a short scene, he could have three martinis.
3: <laughs> if,
22: he, if he had a load to carry, he'd limit it to one. But uh, that determined how much he was going to have at lunch.
20: We used to have to ad-lib when the, in the lineup. We were in the audience, and we'd
16: ad-lib
24: for the lineup. Uh, correct me if I'm not exactly right on this. Do you remember what he said about his son?
27: Oh, yeah, we had to ad-lib in the background. He ad-libbed to me. It nearly caused me to miss a cue where he said, I'm so upset and so nervous. And I said, why? He said, it's my boy. It's his first time on the stage, you know.
14: <laughs> All this cool
27: while we were on there. We came back from uh, one of those days when he didn't have too much to do in the uh, second show, and he had three Bloody Marys. He said to I think I should have some food on my stomach, don't you? I said, I think it would be a good idea. So we ordered a pot of tea and some cinnamon toast. And as we were walking back to the studio, he said, have you got a jelly cell? And I said, yeah, why? My stomach's burning. He
23: said, I don't know what possessed me to order cinnamon toast. He was wonderful.
31: Well, I wouldn't have believed it. It's a regular store. Yes. I declare, Mr. Burgess, it's the equal of anything we have in Omaha. Oh,
11: oh, yes, it is. Chicago, New York, Boston.
0: (laughs) Pliny Burgess bows to no one when it comes to merchandise.
31: Now, this bolt of cloth. Ophie, just look at the quality.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Those threads. Pure gold, madam. Pure gold.
31: Why, there are no such things.
0: Well, in color, I mean. <laughs> yes, pure gold.
31: Oh, well, yes. I see they are. <gasps> oh, no! Ophie, will you stop clutching me so?
15: Look, Ma, oh, it's another one.
31: <laughs> oh, my. Well, he's just another soldier, Ophie. You'd best get used to the sight of them. They're all over out here.
20: Afternoon to you, Captain Quince.
14: Miss Willow Planey. Uh, to the back. With the account books, as usual, Captain. Thank you. <laughs>
31: My sakes, he's a big one.
12: Yeah, oh, yes, he is.
27: Oh
31: <laughs> Now, Ovi, you stop making eyes this minute. You've been spoke for by that other one, and he's a lieutenant. <laughs> <laughs> lovely girl. Shy, but
14: she's a lovely
3: girl. Miss <laughs> Willen. Well,
26: yes,
33: right Hello, Lee. Hello. Well, come on in.
14: If you're busy, why, we can forget about it.
33: No, you'll not get off that easy. I'm not busy, and I've been expecting you.
14: You... You shouldn't wait for me, Willa,
33: you know that. Sit down, Lee. Thanks. I don't wait for you. As you say, I know better than that. I wait for Major Daggett. How's that? How's that? Sooner or later, he always orders you to attend the ball. And when he does, sooner or later, you decide you'd rather escort me than dance with Rankin officers' wives the entire evening. <laughs> is
14: that the way it is?
33: I'm afraid so. But that's not a complaint. I'll be ready at eight. All right. <laughs> well, don't look so trapped, Lee. You're not, you know.
21: I... I...
14: wasn't thinking about me...
33: <laughs> Don't worry about me, I understand. It's a lovely day. It'll be a lovely evening, Lee.
14: Yeah. It looks like Mr. Syberts is going to have a lovely evening, too.
33: Oh, poor Ophie.
14: Poor Syberts. You could have spared him that if you'd accepted him instead of waiting around for...
33: For Major Daggett.
14: Yeah. Yeah, for Major Daggett. <laughs>
33: heavens, what... Me. Come after me! Get him out of here! Savages! It's not safe! Savages!
11: Uh, uh, madam, madam, please, oh, please... Get him out! Oh, oh, but, oh, no. oh, you're, you're perfectly safe, madam. Now, no. Uh, me no do
17: nothing. Walk in store. Do nothing. But we'll be killed.
16: We'll all be killed. What's wrong out here? Oh, I got an awful fright. Get him out of here!
11: Hey, take the girl, oh, will
16: Come in. along, Opie. It's Captain. all
33: right. Yes, sir,
11: tell her it's all right, Captain. It's the engine. She's not used to the sight of him.
14: Captain White Woman... Bad spirit? No white bird. She's she just frightened. White bird frightened, too. Him do nothing.
31: He walked in here. Big as life. That's what he did. Right in the store, mind you, like he was a... a...
14: Human being?
31: Yes. Like he was a... human being.
14: Is... that all he did?
31: Well... Yes, but if I hadn't cried the alarm, we'd have all been massacred. That's what they do, you know.
14: Whitebird, go. Come later to trade.
0: Well, now, you bring uh, silver and more blankets, Whitebird? Uh,
14: Trade for food. Uh, Come back later when bad spirit and white woman go.
31: Well, I never... You people dealing with him, trading like he was a...
14: He's a reservation Indian, ma'am. He's all right. Oh, yes. A,
26: I, I would like to look at what he has to offer, Captain.
14: Well, go on into the storeroom. Make your trades. Yes, sir. Go on. It's all right, Whitebird. Why,
26: of course. Come on. Come on, Whitebird. Come on.
14: And see you trade him fair, Pliny. Oh, I'm the soul of honor, Captain. Yeah. Wilson. You uh, feel better, ma'am?
31: You've done nothing to make me feel better. I I see you're mighty solicitous about your savage in there. Not so much as a kind word for a frightened white woman.
14: Sorry, ma'am. We know White Bird. He's our friend. We've lived with him. But we've no mind to be unkind to strangers.
31: You mean to say that Indians have the run of this fort, young man?
14: Some Indians, the ones we know and trust. Ones who... Trust us. You'll find that in the West.
31: But what about all the killing? The massacres, that's all you hear in Omaha and near all you read. How many whites the red savages have murdered. Now I say that's true or it isn't.
14: Some of it is, ma'am. Indians are like us. There's good and bad. We've got a bad one on the post. Yellow Horse. But he's in the stockade.
31: That's as it should be. You think that, don't you? I think that. Well, it's a pity you can't tell by looking.
14: Ooh. You can sometimes, if you know what to look for. But that comes with knowing, folks. White men or red men.
31: Face value. It's a risky business, young man. Many's the time I've been dead wrong in judging a body on first sight. I mean, of course, I'm talking about white folks.
14: You planning to live in the West, ma'am?
31: In Virginia City. Homer's out there now. Ophie and me are going to him. Sakes, I guess I got a lot of learning ahead of me. A lot of learning.
7: Well, most stories do end rather tragically and of sad, despite the propaganda in the great United States of America. No, most people, they've most had sad endings. A great number of them did. Jesus. They a hard life. Didn't live very long. Anymore. While they lived, it was pretty rough. And the brutality and the violence. we talk about violence these days. And the violence in those days was. It was rampant. Uh, my God, the violence! The poor way of life. You know, no medicine, no sanitation, no not much of anything. Not heat and sand and little water. Not much food. It's been romanticized fairly well. But, uh, maybe that's that answers the question. I don't know. It didn't romanticize me so much.
14: Sergeant? Over here, Sergeant. Oh. Yes, sir. Captain? Finished eating gores? Yes, sir. Ate plenty, too. Good thing I got no bars on my shoulders. I'd be right too stuffed to waltz tonight. That's all? Fine spring evening for a flock of fancy waltzes, though. All right, Sergeant. You're making your point. Yes, sir. You, uh... Got any plans for tonight after tattoo? Oh, I drew some duty, Captain. Duty?
22: A kind of special duty, too. Orders come down from Major Daggett to double the guard at the stockade. Well, I figured you'd know that.
32: No.
14: No, I didn't. Ain't they sending yellow horse on to Leavenworth before long? That's up to Washington. Yeah. Sure got a lot of time back there, ain't they, Captain? Seems like it, sometimes. Did you have something you wanted me to do tonight? No. No, nothing. Well, before I told you about the duty, you asked about my plans, Captain. You answered my questions. Yes, sir. That's all, Sergeant.
22: If anything comes up at the stockade, I'll see you hear about it,
23: sir.
14: You'll report to Major Daggett? Yes, sir. Good night, Gors. Captain? Yeah. It's a right smart sash you're wearing. Good night, Gors. Yes, sir. <laughs>
33: been trying to get your attention for the last half hour, Lee.
14: Who has?
33: Mrs. Kleinhexel, and you haven't even asked her to dance yet, either.
14: I know, I know, but I... Shh,
33: here she comes. Excuse me, you two,
31: but I've got to have word to this young man. I'm sending the
33: lieutenant to dance with you, dearie. Captain Quince was just on his way over to you, Mrs. Kleinhexel. I'll find Lieutenant Seibertz. Well, shall we, Captain?
14: Proud to, ma'am.
31: I could waltz with a glass of water on my head and never spill a drop. That's what Homer always says.
14: You try it with me, ma'am. You stand a chance of drowning.
31: There's good humor in you, young man. I like that.
14: (laughs) Thank you. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh,
31: I wanted to tell you, I went out on the veranda for a breath of air a while back. And when I first saw them, I came near to screaming like I did this afternoon with the other Indians.
14: You're developing a real eye for Indians, ma'am.
31: Yes, I am. I've been trying to recollect, though. I don't believe he was wearing them in the store today.
14: White bird? Wearing what?
31: And uh, the feathers.
14: No, ma'am, he wasn't wearing feathers.
31: I didn't think so. Now these Indians was. Well, maybe it suits their fancy.
14: You're sure they were wearing feathers?
31: I just told you. There was five or six, I guess. Excuse me, and... ma'am.
14: I have to speak to the major.
31: Now
11: what's wrong with feathers? Major Daggett, sir. Where are those shots
8: coming from, Captain? That's a stockade, Major. Seibert! Lawson! Let's go!
14: Six of them. All dead, Sergeant? Dead engines, Captain. Good thing you doubled the guard, Major. What about Yellow Horse? Oh, he was whooping for a while. And I checked him. He's got his health, all of it. Captain. Yes, sir? Fall in a detail. I want Yellow Horse on his way to Leavenworth no later than noon tomorrow. Any questions? Just one, sir. What about Washington? I'll telegraph Washington tonight. Oh, Captain. Yes, Major. Thank you.
21: Fort Laramie is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, and stars Raymond Burr as Lee Quince, Captain of Cavalry, with Vic Perrin as Sergeant Gorse. The script was specially written for Fort Laramie by Kathleen Height, with sound patterns by Bill James and Ray Kemper, musical supervision by Amerigo Marino. Featured in the cast were Jeanette Nolan, Sam Edwards, Eleanor Tannen, Harry Bartell, Jack Moyles, Shirley Mitchell, Howard McNear, Frank Cady, and Jack Crucian. When comes an emergency, it's savings that talk. When sickness strikes in time of accident or emergency, it helps to be in good financial shape. That's why it pays and pays to invest in United States savings bonds regularly. Have the money deducted automatically through payroll savings or through your bank's bond-a-month plan. Let the bonds you've saved save you when you need money. The new 3% interest United States Savings Bond, better than ever. This has been a public service message from CBS Radio.
29: I would occasionally have four shows a day. Some would be at CBS. There were times when the artist entrance was too far for me to run through. They'd have a special page holding a door because the timing was so awful. I mean, it was maybe five minutes apart to get from CBS to NBC. And then they would Probably hold a special running door. Down, uh,
24: then, running right? down Sunset Boulevard Running down Sunset Boulevard.
29: Well, they would let me park You usually at a spot because, uh-huh. and sometimes I would run and cut through the back way. He, the page would have the door open. I'd get in. Somebody would hand me a script with cuts in it. You always had cuts because the timing was done mm-hmm. at the last minute. And I'd go on the air because I also then began to do, on Sunday afternoons, the Colgate Comedy Hour. Les Tremaine and I did that for a mm-hmm. couple of seasons with Bob Crosby. I would do that and Gildersleeve. Fibber was on a Tuesday. right? And uh, I would occasionally do Fibber on a Tuesday and then the Jack Carson show on a Tuesday. Then there was Joan Davis and Rudy Valley in between all of that. And, and would, all
24: the stuff was going on at everything. the same time.
29: At NBC and CBS. It was such a, an exciting time. The, the fans would be lined up in front. You know, I don't know, have you been down? Of course you have on Vine Street and Hollywood. Sure. Mm-hmm. The fans would be lined up for a block. Maybe all the way around, waiting to get in. They let them in a half hour before the show, and at the artist entrance, you had the same fans every day. Who you know got—they grew up. I mean, I met one lady in Hughes recently shopping, and she said, "Do you remember me?" <laughs> and uh, she recognized me because I've done quite a bit of television. But it was the most glorious time. I'm sure you've gotten that from every radio actor, haven't you?
24: Yes, virtually everyone we've spoken to has said the same thing. It was. Really, the best of times. Incredible. Even Incredible. people who have certainly gone into even greater success in television, right. they've always said it was so great because, first of all, you didn't have to deal with the That's makeup right. and That's the costumes right. and all of that. Even though you did dress, uh, oh, uh, we for dressed a nighttime sure, show.
29: sure. And we were a family. Mm-hmm. We still are very, very close. Janet Waldo and I are very close friends. Ginny, Greg. Alvia Allman, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's just, it was a nucleus of people that you never grew away from, and they were dear, wonderful people. On television, you know, you do a show, you never see anybody again.
28: This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? Smells like gazpacho? A gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to firesidemysterytheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother, that villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So, tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow!
3: I think probably
5: the best thing about the radio days was that as an actor, you could stay fluent.
26: You were in and out, the job was done. The ease and speed of radio, the absence of commitment, the the absence of time spent, you could have all the thrill and all the challenge of a full performance with four rehearsals and the air show. Mm -hmm. And you didn't spend eight hours driving to and from location and getting in and out of wardrobe and waiting for the young actors to learn how to do their
4: parts.
8: At the gallop, oh.
14: Afternoon, Captain. Afternoon. What'll it be? Oh, glass of rye. Yes, sir. Hey, uh, Captain. Afternoon off? No. I just came in to talk to Smithson about some freighting. Well, here's luck. Well, now, thank you, Captain.
18: Thought that was a soldier's mount out front.
14: Where's that? Hello, Captain. Banyan. <laughs> you surprised? I didn't expect to see you here. Thought you'd be long gone from these parts, Banyan. Gone, come back,
18: and on my way again. Huh? To where? Oh, I think I'll try California, San Francisco this time. I hear it's a nice place. San Francisco. Even this place is nice when you aren't in the Army. (laughs) Hey, like a drink? I don't mind. Another uh, glass
14: here, bartender.
9: Coming right up.
18: How's civilian life? Oh, you should try it, Captain. Nobody... Nobody issuing orders from Washington all the time. You know, orders telling you to do something foolish about <laughs> some other foolish thing. I don't suppose any of that's changed much. Oh, well, Washington never changes. All, right. all right, gents. Yeah. Thanks, Quince. <clears throat> In for the day? Nope. I'm on my way back right now. Oh. I thought you might like to join me. Doing what? Nice poker game going on over there. They've been at it two days, two nights now. Now, that fellow there in the Stetson from Montana, he's winning a lot. But he's getting pretty tired. I figure it's just about time for me to walk in (laughs) with a good night's sleep. Don't you? Might be. Yeah. That's how I look at it. Just figure I'll have him wore down in, oh, six, seven hours. About the time you're sitting horse at retreat. They still have that, don't they? Retreat. Yeah, they do. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thanks for the drink, Captain.
13: Captain... Hmm? That fella you were just talking with. Been around here two or three days. Don't seem to know what to do with himself.
14: Uh, Fill this up, will you?
13: Sure. Seemed familiar in a way, though.
14: Soldier, was he? He was in the army. But he was never a soldier. Yeah, see you later.
8: At ease. At ease.
22: Bright and shining for dress parade, soldiers. Bright and shining.
11: How soon, Sergeant? They'll
22: sound off any minute, soldier, and you just hope you're not late.
11: I thought this was a fighting off. How's that? Well, we had a dress parade last week, Sergeant. And there may be another next week. I just want to hear wind going by me when that bugle blows. Just wind. When the dust settles, B Company
22: better be all present or accounted for. Carry on.
14: Company will make a good showing, sir. It had better, Sergeant. Yes, sir. The book says a clean soldier's a good soldier. Yes, sir. And Major Daggett goes by the book. Call the men in. Yes, sir. Owen Gorse. Sir? Be sure Trooper Linley stays awake this time.
1: episode from April 22nd The New Recruit was written by E. Jack Newman
26: Drama without information is dull and uh, information without drama is dull I like to provoke an audience I like to make them think if I can I like to think a little myself I hate to be cliché
1: Featured in the cast were Paul Dubov Lawrence Dobkin James Nusser Sam Edwards John Daner and Lou Krugman As a matter of fact, I started a little station called W.O.D.A. in Patterson,
26: New Jersey. I remember I walked in there, and the manager, the announcer, the sound effects man, the writer, they were all one person, it was one little room, and I recited The Raven for him, and uh, the next week I was on the air, and I was going to high school at the time, and from then on I was doing excerpts from Shakespeare, I was doing everything from Dangerous Dan McGrew to The Face on the Barroom Floor. (laughs) I finished high school, and of course I went into the theater, And I came back again, back in the 30s. And then I kind of started at an interesting place called WHN, um, which was owned by MGM in New York City. I worked at that station. I started off actually doing impersonations. I worked at that station under contract for about two years. And we did about 40, 45 shows a week, seven days a week. Atta Italian?
13: is formed. Take your post, sir.
14: Dismiss the parade, sir. complimented, gentlemen. The troopers were well turned out. There are no orders to be published, so that's all, gentlemen.
26: you walking over to the mess, Quince? Oh, I'm going back to
14: the orderly room. Corporal Mercer has got some reports for me. I'll, I'll see you at the mess later, Meade.
18: All right. Retreat parade is still just the same, isn't it? How did you get on this post? Very simple. Just told the sentry I wanted to enlist in the army. What do you want, Benyon? I wasn't lying to the sentry. I want to enlist.
14: You don't have any use for the army. You didn't while you were in. You're going
18: to try to talk me out of it?
14: Come on in. Didn't that
18: poker game turn out too well? Oh, that fella from Montana, he, he wasn't as tired as he looked. He cleaned me out. So, I guess I'm not going to San Francisco.
14: Men don't usually enlist in the Army for just a meal and a
18: bed. Oh, that's right, Captain. You generally, find a meal and a bed any place.
14: Why do you want to get back in the Army, Banyan? <laughs>
18: now, once before, I filled out an enlistment blank and I saw things asking me my full name and where I was from and how old and if I had prior service and all things like that. I never saw a line on one of them asking why.
14: Mm. Corporal Mercer. Yes, sir. Will you tell the doctor I have a recruit to be examined? Yes, sir. Here, fill this out. Oh, sure. If you're physically acceptable, I'll swear you in tonight.
18: Oh, I got a civilian horse and some other things back in town.
14: Then you can go back to town and dispose of them. Report back here first thing in the morning. Yeah. I hope you know what you're doing, Banyan.
18: I thought on it. Long time I thought on it.
8: All prisoner accounted for, sir. All
14: right, Sergeant. Dismiss the company. Yes, sir.
8: Company. Dismissed.
14: Uh, Sergeant Gorse. Yes, sir? Uh, I want to talk to you. We, uh... We have a new man coming in today, Sergeant. Non-commissioned officer. A non-comp, sir? That's right. This company? This company. He transfer out here, sir? He re-enlisted. It's... Will Banyan. Banyan? Banyan served six years. He was entitled to three stripes coming in. Captain. What is it? Banyan never could forget he was related to some officer on the general
22: staff back in Washington. He held that up in front of everybody. It was kind
14: of touchy then. Could be the same all over again. That isn't quite clear. Well, some of the officers didn't know how to take him. Neither did the men. He just got himself some easy stripes. Easy or not, he's got them, Sergeant. You asked me to keep this company running, sir, I like to keep it running. There's no place for Banyan and me both. I'll see you after mess. Yes, sir.
18: Stage in the shadow. Then I came on. In. You were a civilian about eight months then. Yeah. Eight <laughs> months, two weeks, three days, and four.
12: Good morning, sir.
14: Morning, Mr. Washburn. Banyan, you may be in civilian clothes right now, but you're in the army again. Now get on your feet. <laughs> You know where the mess hall is located.
18: Oh no, I think I can still remember. Where as
14: I... soon as you've had your breakfast, report to Sergeant Gorse. He'll take you over to AQM stores. All right, sir. Mr. Washburn. Uh, yes, sir. Did you read the special orders this morning? Yes, sir. I did. Did you notice that Will Banyan holds the rank of sergeant? Yes, sir. Then just remember, you hold a commission. He's a sergeant. Yes, sir. But but
12: I thought, I, I mean, you and Sergeant Gorse, uh, uh,
14: you thought incorrectly, Mister Washburn. Yes, sir. Had your breakfast? No, sir. Come on.
12: Captain. Hmm? Lieutenant Syberts and I were talking a while back. Sergeant Gorse isn't gonna like another sergeant around. He
14: doesn't like it, Mr. Washburn, and I don't like it. But we have to put up with it. Yes, sir. I'll remember that. <laughs>
22: Housewife kit, bridle, lariat and hobbles.
10: Bridle, hobbles.
14: Picket pin. Yeah. Razor, mirror, soap, comb. Right. Two blankets.
19: Two
18: blankets?
14: Bacon can. Curry comb.
22: Collar ornaments. Cross saber. Colt revolver. Yeah. Springfield carbine.
19: Carbine?
22: Canteen and mess outfit. Canteen
18: and mess outfit.
22: Check. Check. All right, storm away, Sergeant. Uh, Sure,
10: Sergeant.
22: When you're squared away, report back here.
10: Sure. Oh, Captain.
14: Carry on, Sergeant Bannon. Yes, sir. All right, Gores, as you were... Yes, sir. Gorse, where are you putting Banyan? With Corporal Hunter, sir. Can you... Can you put him in your quarters? Sir? I'd like him to live in your quarters. I'd just as soon he didn't, Captain. But that's the way we're going to do it. Captain,
22: I've got to
14: speak my mind, sir. All right.
22: No man ever come in this company. I couldn't break in. But you're asking me to handle a three-striper that's got a general working for him in Washington. You're asking me to treat him like a sergeant when he ain't a good enough man to be a private in anybody's company. Sergeant. You told me
14: to speak out, sir. Well, there's only room for one sergeant here. Now I'm telling you to shut up, sergeant, and stay shut. Yes, sir. That's all.
1: Unfortunately for Fort Laramie, no national sponsorship was forthcoming.
6: It seems to me that in the old days of radio, and I'm going back again to the 40s and 50s, the executives, whether men like Guy Della Chapa or Harry Ackerman or whomever, were men with an experience in and a feeling for the theatrical end of the business as opposed to the business end of radio. There was a wonderful meeting of the minds when you went in and said you wanted to do such and such a kind of show. They could they could picture and understand and either agree or disagree with what you had in mind, but they knew what you were talking about. It was really extraordinarily easy to get a conference or a meeting with the uh, then CBS brass. Usually it was one man or two men, and that one man or those two men said yes or no to your idea, and you either went with it or didn't. There was no feeling of committee and that somebody upstairs would say yes or no.
14: Captain Gwynn's reporting, sir. Oh, at ease, Captain. I, uh... I have a request from Sergeant Gorse asking for transfer to Fort Lincoln. Oh? He gave the reason that he intends to marry a girl living in that area. That's a lie, isn't it? He's not intending to marry anyone as far as I know, sir. Then it's Banyan? Sergeant Gorse feels that Banyan's rank is unfair. It is up to you to convince him that Banyan's rank was automatic when he re-enlisted. Sergeant Gorse can't regard it in that light, sir. He feels that Banyan's influence in Washington helped him get the rank. Not only that, but Banyan's rating moves back the others a whole notch. Your company could go sour because of him. I don't intend to allow that, Captain. You'll, uh... you transfer Banyan? I'll transfer Gorse, if that's what he wants. Sir, uh... Oh. Gorse is the most valuable man... We can't have this kind of discontent in the company. And Gorse has requested transfer. His rank and seniority in service require me to give the request consideration. I'll wire Colonel Thaler at Fort Lincoln today and ask if he'll accept Sergeant Gorse. I'm sure he would be glad to. Major, could you... Would you withhold that application? I don't want to lose Gorse or Banyan. I'd expect to keep them both. Well, I thought I'd talk with Sergeant Gorse once more. I had the impression once that Banyan's reenlistment was a casual thing. No man enlists in the Army casually. Yes, sir. That's exactly it. And I'll set this aside till I hear from you. Thank you, sir.
12: kind of peaceful this way. Hmm. I said it's kind of peaceful, Captain. I like this time of night best on a post. You do? Oh, yes, sir. You know, I feel kind of sorry for Seibert's pulling O.D. on a night like this.
14: A cigar, Captain? Huh? Oh, no, no thanks. Well, I, I think I'll take a stroll. Like to come along? I believe I... Uh, be- come along, Mr. Washburn. Oh, yes, sir.
12: Captain. Hmm? I- is it true, I mean, about Sergeant Gorse wanting a transfer? I. yes, it's true. Because of Banyan? Mm-hmm. Sergeant Gorse is the best man I ever seen in his job. Be difficult to replace him. It would
14: it would indeed. Evening, Captain. Lieutenant? Oh, hello, Sergeant. Oh, uh, Sergeant Gorse. Yes, sir. Step over here, will you? I ask the Major not to act on your transfer till tomorrow morning, Sergeant. All right, Captain. Chances are, in another outfit, you'd meet another Sergeant wearing stripes like yours. I guess that's right enough, but only one of us should be wearing them here. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Mr. Washburn? Why? Well, I... In all fairness. Well, uh, I'm inclined to agree with Sergeant Gore, sir. So am I. And I think Lieutenant Seibert's would, too. How's that, Captain? You heard me. There's room for only one sergeant in this outfit. Do I understand the captain? It's not up to the major or myself to settle this. It's the sergeant's business. Do I understand you, sir? Yeah, I think you do.
22: Yes, sir. I think I do. Will
14: the captain and lieutenant excuse me, sir? Good night, Sergeant. Sir, he understood
12: you, but I didn't. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. He's sir. going to
14: look up Sergeant Banyan, Mr. Washburn, and the chances are only one of them will be Sergeant by morning. Best man of the two. Yes, sir, but who is the best man? Sergeant Gorse has just gone to settle that question, I think. Come on, Mr. Westburn.
1: Ultimately, Fort Laramie would only last for ten months. It was cancelled after the October 28th, 1956 episode. Captain, sir. Banyan? The next week. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, moved Uh, from a a weekday serial into Fort Laramie's Sunday time slot. What is it?
18: I wish to be relieved of my stripes, sir. I thought you might request transfer, but I didn't think... No, sir. Not a transfer. I I would want to stay here, in in this company. I see. Once the Captain asked me why I re-enlisted in the Army. I could answer the captain now. Go ahead, Banyan. Yes, sir. I I, I served in the army once with, with a general back of me. I failed that time. I thought I hated the army, but I came back because I hated failing worse. Does this make any sense to the captain? Yes, it does. Yes, sir. I told the captain I thought about it before I came back in, I, I, I and I knew I'd have sergeants pay. I didn't know I was starting to fail again. I know that now. Last night... <laughs> last night, Sergeant Gorse explained some things to me. We talked it over outside the fort. Mm-hmm. Um, what...
14: Happened to your face? I fell off my horse, sir. A good cavalry soldier falls off his horse sometimes. Yes, sir. Thank you, Captain.
18: I don't mean to again.
21: Lee?
14: Oh, morning, Major.
21: Hey.
14: Isn't that Will Banyan and Sergeant Gorse together? Why, uh. Yes, sir. <laughs> Where'd they fight it out? Off the compound, sir. Yeah, that's good. Lee, why'd you let Banyan re enlist in the first place? He wanted to. And he had guts enough to come back here where he'd failed and try again. And that coffee from the mess hall mm-hmm smells good Come on yes sir
21: Fort Laramie is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, and stars Raymond Burr as Lee Quince, Captain of Cavalry, with Vic Perrin as Sergeant Gorse. The script was specially written for Fort Laramie by E. Jack Newman, with sound patterns by Bill James and Ray Kemper. Musical supervision by Amerigo Marino. Featured in the cast were Lawrence Dobkin, Jack Moyles, Paul Duboff, James Nusser, John Daner, Sam Edwards, and Lou Krugman.
1: In 1957, Raymond Burr was cast as Perry Mason and moved into TV, where he'd remain a regular fixture for the rest of his life.
21: Little boys can be the most exasperating creatures on earth. They can also be very amusing and lovable indeed. A CBS radio dramatic series that makes the most of this fact is that delightful program called My Son Jeep, heard every evening, Monday through Friday, over most of these same stations. Focusing on the adventures and misadventures of the most normal of all small boys, the story of My Son Jeep is hilarious and heartwarming by turns, just like its hero. Hear My Son Jeep every evening, Monday through Friday, right here on CBS Radio.
14: I feel that i know enough about the law after being involved in this show for seven years
3: to be able to recommend a good lawyer
4: Gunsmoke started
6: on the air in '52, as we've mentioned, and network radio was beginning to die just at the time we were starting. I guess what I mean is that in those early days, if you were doing a uh, a series and the series was canceled, something else popped up, and you were told to start preparing for a show called such and such, which would go on the air next Tuesday. There was always something to replace the show that went off the air. By the end of the 50s, and certainly by the 60s, when a show went off the air, that was just the end of that half hour, or that hour, or that two hour segment, and it was filled with something else. And that something else usually came from New York. It was a sad period for those of us who were fond of radio, and enjoyed radio, and indeed had
1: been brought up in radio, and it was not sour grapes. Although Fort Laramie was cancelled, CBS wasn't ready to give up launching new adult radio westerns. In February of 1958, the network launched Luke's Slaughter of Tombstone, starring Sam Buffington. It would last until June. John Daner, who was then co-starring on film in The Left-Handed Gun with Paul Newman, finally gave up his fear of being typecast and took the lead of J.B. Kendall in Frontier Gentlemen. The series would last into November, before Daner was cast as Paladin in a radio version of Have Gun, Will Travel. That series was also produced and directed by Norman MacDonald.
5: No, everything sort of just dissolved, just vanished. There was no way that I could have continued on because radio was killed by the business. CBS killed its own child. NBC killed its own child. They all said... We're not going to have radio drama anymore because it is not paying off. In a very conscious way, all radio shows were canceled. They went to music, they went to talk shows, or whatever it was, yeah. Talk shows? A pox on those.
1: When that show went off the air in November of 1960, Gunsmoke became the last remaining Hollywood dramatic radio production at CBS.
26: It was tricky for those of us who were regulars on Gunsmoke, or more or less regulars on Gunsmoke, we had the last surviving live radio show for a long time. We were the only radio show still going. Everything else had dried up and gone. At least, I'd forgotten now whether it was two years or three, after Gunsmoke became a television series. And we were still doing the radio show.
19: So you said a I live
26: radio show. It,
6: it was on tape. Well,
26: we did it on tape. But I mean, but it was still...
1: We did like it as though it were live. yeah. Gunsmoke finally went off the air in June of 1961.
13: Radio was deserted by its own mother and father.
17: It was left to lie on the doorstep and wither and die.
13: Consciously and willfully.
6: I would truly enjoy going back to the old days of being completely involved in radio. There was a marvelous feeling of going home after you... would finished your day's work and indeed finished your program and sitting down and saying boy i liked what happened today i liked the show we did i feel good about it and being able to sit there sometimes if it was tape delay or something and hear your own show was a great sense of satisfaction the beauty of course was that the next morning you got up and started on the script for the following day or two days later or five days later and you We're starting a whole new world all over again, which he wanted to deliver in three days, and had to be confined to 29 minutes and 30 seconds. And this, I think, was the beauty of radio. Each member of the audience, however big or however small, had a chance to exercise his own imagination and to draw his own pictures and add it to what he heard. Bill Robeson said that America may well have forgotten how to listen. And... I think this might well be true. So many of us are apt to sit in front of the television set. Whether we really absorb anything or not, I don't know. We sit and we watch in radio, which has been called the theater of the mind. Your imagination worked and drew for you whatever pictures you wanted. The theater of the mind's been dark for nearly 15 years now, and I think perhaps it's time somebody turned the lights up again.
23: I saw you on the telly the other day. I was sitting down to eat lunch, and I put on Twilight Zone, and there was an episode, maybe you folks remember, of the two astronauts who land. The one dies, and the living astronaut is Roddy McDowell, and he's terrified to go out of the capsule and his friend who's died has told him no no there'll be people just like us it'll be okay so he goes out and by golly they are people like they, they do look just like us and the leader of this group is played by Vic wearing a, an adorable little toga a little toga a very short one as
22: a matter uh, of fact did I tell you what happened on that this uh, spacecraft has crashed and I crawl into the spacecraft Mm -hmm. to examine the survivor and I have to lift my legs very high Uh to get over the edge of this spacecraft. you're wearing a toga. Wearing a toga. And we had to do that four or five times and I finally did it holding the skirt down as I did it. It looked rather nice, I think, Uh as I did it, rather graceful. Otherwise the audience might have gotten
23: a glimpse of your Twilight Zone.
1: (laughs) (laughs) While our time at Fort Laramie has come to an end, we aren't leaving 1956 just yet.
23: Ladies
2: and gentlemen, the distinguished author, Mr. Aldous Huxley.
6: Brave New World is a fantastic parable about the dehumanization of human beings. In the negative utopia described in my story, man has been subordinated to his own inventions. Science, technology, social organization, these things have ceased to serve man. They have become his masters. A quarter of a century has passed since the book was published. In that time, our world has taken so many steps in the wrong direction that if I were writing today, I would date my story not 600 years in the future, but at the most 200. The price of liberty and even of common humanity is eternal vigilance.
1: Next time on Breaking Walls. It's January of 1956, and CBS has decided to bring back one of the most distinguished shows of all time. It's a show that helped launch the careers of Orson Welles and Norman Corwin. A show that pushed radio's boundaries with people like Irving Reese and William Robeson. And it's a show that, when brought back this winter, helped keep the medium of dramatic radio alive, creating new avenues of expression for men and women on both coasts. The show was the CBS Radio Workshop. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg, as well as articles from Broadcasting Magazine and the Los Angeles Times. On the interview front, Eve Arden, Dick Beals, Edgar Bergen, and Shirley Mitchell spoke to Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Harry Bartell, Lillian Bayev, Lawrence Dobkin, Lou Krugman, Jeanette Nolan, and Vic Perrin were with Spurvac. For more information, go to spurvac.com. John Daner, John Dunkel, Norman McDonald, and John Meston were with John Hickman, for his History of Gunsmoke documentary. John Daner and Vic Perrin were also with Neil Ross for KMPC. Jack Crucian and Shirley Mitchell were with Jim Bohannon. And Raymond Burr was with Jack Webster. Selected music featured in today's episode was Don't Fence Me In by Bing Crosby and the Andrews Sisters, February Sea by George Winston, Sligo Creek by Al Petaway and Debbie Smith for Ken Burns' The National Parks, Heartbreak Hotel by Elvis Presley, and Seance on a Wet Afternoon by John Barry. The clip from Camel's Rock and Roll Dance Party comes courtesy of Gordon Skeen and his extensive sound collection. Please find out more at pastdaily.com. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the new audio drama set in 1835 in New York City. It will be available everywhere you get your podcast, and at burninggotham.com. Special thank you to Ted Davenport and Jerry Hendegas, two radio show collectors who helped supply material for this episode. They're who the large retailers go to. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. And for Jerry, please visit otrsite.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of SpurVac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls, episode 115, will focus on the revived CBS Radio Workshop. We'll remain in 1956 and hear stories and more from this incredibly experimental audio show. This episode will be available beginning May 1st, 2021, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash The Wall And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash The Wall So until May 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode 114. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.